Your Total Wine & More store is ready to serve you with our always low prices on an incredible 8,000 wines and 2,500 beers. Want it today? Try our same-day delivery or contactless curbside pickup at TotalWine.com. Whether you're grabbing your favorite beer or pouring a glass to enjoy an evening on the deck, Total Wine & More has you covered. Visit any of our 12 stores in Northern Virginia. Astonishing Legends would like to thank Quip, Mint Mobile, A Life Lived, The Great Courses Plus, and our contributors at Patreon.com for making tonight's show possible. We know a lot of you are probably multitasking right now. Maybe driving somewhere or working out. Perhaps you're burying somebody in the garden before fall sets in. But some of you may be able to safely get online. Those that can, go ahead and Google Weird Willis. That's right. That's all you need to type in. At the top of your search returns, you'll find a website titled strangeandspookyworld.com. This is the virtual home of tonight's guest, James A. Willis. James Willis is a man of many talents, not the least of which is being an author of several books. And as we were drafting up tonight's cold open, we wanted to share some excerpts from his bio. Not since the Headless Horseman went charging through Sleepy Hollow has something come out of the Hudson Highlands of upstate New York as thrilling and chilling as author and paranormal researcher James A. Willis. Fueled by a steady childhood diet of Boo Berry cereal, Creepy Magazine, and late-night Vincent Price movies, Willis soon developed a taste for the unexplained and quickly began seeking out all things strange and spooky. In 1999, after spending more than 15 years chasing after ghosts and visiting crybaby bridges, Willis moved to Ohio and founded The Ghosts of Ohio, which you can find online at ghostsofohio.org. It has since become a nationally recognized paranormal research organization. In 2004, in what seemed to be destiny, Mark Moran and Mark Skirman, the brainchilds of the Weird U.S. series of books, approached Willis and asked him to contribute to their latest volume, Weird U.S. To date, Willis has been involved with six books in the Weird U.S. series. Willis's unique and offbeat writing style was officially recognized in 2006 with his induction into the Grand Order of Weird Writers. In 2015, Willis released Ohio's Historic Haunts, investigating the paranormal in the Buckeye State. A joint effort with Kent State University Press, the book approached hauntings and ghost stories from a historical perspective and chronicled Willis's personal experiences when locked inside some of Ohio's most haunted locations. Willis's latest project, 2017's Central Ohio Legends and Lore, had him chasing down some of the Buckeye State's most legendary characters, including Johnny Appleseed, Annie Oakley, and Chief Leatherlips. On top of all of that, he's a sought-after public speaker who has entertained tens of thousands of people with his weird perspective on the world we live in, and tonight, he's here with us, Astonishing Legends listeners. So let's get ready to get weird with James A. Willis. Welcome back to Astonishing Legends. I'm Scott Philbrook, and this is Forrest Burgess. Ghosts exist. Ghosts exist to help keep history alive. 
Paranormal investigator, author, and public speaker, James A. Willis from the introduction to his book, Ohio's Historic Haunts, published in 2015 by the Kent State University Press. Join us tonight for our interview with James A. Willis about his paranormal experiences and more. Well done. Uh, that we are, folks. Headed into the spooky time of year. I'm sorry, I had a frog in my throat. Yes, indeed. I hope it I hope got it got really out. low there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> There's a lot of things going on at Astonishing Legends right now, so here's a quick overview. Uh, first of all, if you didn't listen to the recently posted special announcement that we put in the main feed a week or so ago, we are giving away five copies of the Yale University Press's magnificent reproduction of the Voynich Manuscript. They graciously supplied them for the giveaway, and I can tell you, having procured a copy of my own, that this book is gorgeous and is actually the first authorized reproduction of it ever created. If you want to see what it looks like, we recently posted some video of it on our YouTube channel, and you can see it there. It has the foldouts and everything and very high-resolution photographs of each page. It's really amazing. Because legal stuff, here again is the official announcement regarding the giveaway, which is restricted to the United States. Forrest? Astonishing Legends is excited to announce a giveaway of five copies provided by Yale University Press of the Voynich Manuscript, edited by Raymond Clemens, with an introduction by Deborah Harkness. There is no purchase necessary to enter or win. Making a purchase or payment of any kind will not increase your chances of winning. Void where prohibited or restricted by law. You can enter the giveaway online at tinyurl.com slash giveaway. And this link is available on all of our social media accounts, including Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Reddit. You can also receive the link to enter by emailing astonishingcontact at gmail.com and putting attention tests in the subject line. The giveaway went live on August 31st, 2019 and ends September 21st, 2019 at 11.59 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time. When time expires, we'll choose the five winners and email them directly. In other news, most of our existing patrons will already be aware of this, but we've started posting full commercial-free episodes to our Patreon page for $5 and above patrons. They are generally posted up to 24 hours prior to the regular show hitting our main feed. To find out more about that, visit patreon.com slash astonishinglegends. We're working on getting the back catalog posted there as well, but that will take a little time. Finally, there is one other thing to discuss. We're excited to announce the pending launch of a new podcast, hosted by a very secretive outlier of the Astonishing Legends universe, known as Miranda Merrick. Ms. Merrick is the head librarian and master of special collections at the dark and mysterious Midnight Library. Stay tuned after our closing credits tonight for a preview of what's to come with that show. More details on its release will follow next week. All right, then. Let's roll our interview with James A. Willis. So we are on with James Willis, who we met back in Kent, Ohio. We keep talking about this one time that we went to the Kent Paranormal Weekend. We, it was a wellspring of a lot of contacts and information. And yeah, and it, so we're slowly getting everybody onto the show. It's been over a year now, but welcome to the show, Jim. How are you doing? I am doing well. How are you guys doing? Uh, we're doing good. You know, we've been wanting to have you on for a long time, and uh, I think part of the problem with us is we tackle these topics, and then they blow up in our faces, and we wind up doing this 
same topic for like two months. And so everything slides down, you know, <laughs> I've been a long time listener. So I, I know what you speak of. <laughs> oh, well, thank you. Thanks yeah, very, much. Thank you very much. We never put people on the spot and ask them that, but since you did, you're definitely going to get some swag after this interview. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's funny because I actually, when we first met at Kent, I think the first question I asked you guys was when are you going to have the coffee mugs back in stock? <laughs> <laughs> we have so many now. We got all kinds of different colors. So you're definitely going to get some. Sweet. I like it. <laughs> yeah. I want to introduce you to our audience. And so maybe you could tell our audience a little bit about your background, about your book and your organization. I guess it's going on 20 years old now, the investigations and everything. And, and just kind of tell people who you are and uh, and what you've been up to. I'm kind of Ohio's best kept ghostly secret, I guess. I'm probably most well known as they affectionately refer to me as the ghost guy, but I consider myself sort of more of like a paranormal researcher because I love the ghost aspect, but I'm kind of into all sorts of weird things. So I'm, I guess I'm a little bit of ghost and paranormal, maybe a bit Fortean and some Kolchak the Night Stalker thrown in, I guess. <laughs> nice. <laughs> <laughs> for good measure, I guess. But um, I'm most commonly referred to as Weird Willis, which seems to capture everything. So, um, but yeah, I was born and raised in uh, the Hudson Valley, New York State, which I think made me weird from the very beginning. Because I tell people, if you want to experience weird stuff, just go up to the Hudson Valley. It was settled by the Dutch, so you've got a lot of these weird Dutch sort of folk tale urban legend things with Native American thrown in. It was home to Washington Irving, and he put a lot of his um, short stories, obviously The Legend of Sleepy Hollow and yeah. Harrytown, New York, and Rip Van Winkle. So there's just ghost stories all over the place. The Adirondack Mountains, Bigfoot sightings are all over there. In the 1980s, there were massive UFO sightings, so much that a book, Night Siege, uh, written by uh, J. Allen Hynek from Project Blue Book. So that book was put out, which is, I think, bringing me full weirdness circle because <laughs> he was involved with Blue Book in Ohio, and I ended up here. But, um, but yeah, the area is just weird. It's close to New York City and New Jersey, so you've got you know, everything from the Jersey Devil. I grew up during the, now I'm going to feel old, but the whole Amityville horror yeah. going on. Son of Sam with the whole satanic cult thing that, you know, the New York Post ran into the ground and, you know, all sorts of things. But what really kind of set me off was um, in the third grade, we took a field trip out to Terrytown, which is the setting for Washington Irving's The Legend of Sleepy Hollow. And my teacher tried to like mess with our heads by telling us it was a true story and took us out to the bridge and the old Dutch church and then um, took us out into the cemetery where they pointed out the members of the Van Tassel family were buried there, which convinced most of the class. And then I did a little research and found out, no, Washington Irving, I guess you could say borrowed this setting and the character name for it. Uh -huh. But that led me to think, okay, well, that story is not a real ghost story, but what are the true ones? And that, at a very early age, kind of started me down this path of looking for ghosts and just general weirdness. My first professional, I guess you could call it, ghost group I joined was in 1985, and that was due, I'm very proud to say, because of the movie called Ghostbusters. <laughs> I read a review right after the movie came out, and there was a little blurb that said that Dan Aykroyd helped design and create, if you will, the proton packs and all that equipment that the Ghostbusters used, and that that was based on actual equipment 
parapsychologists were using to try to, you know, detect ghosts and different forms of paranormal phenomena. So I was hooked at that point. I think a lot of people don't really realize how into that stuff Aykroyd is. Yeah, there's bits and pieces. And what's fascinating is that the title escapes me, but he did put out a book oh. on the subject of paranormal phenomena that I believe it was his father's side. Actually, there is a progression, if you will, of interest in the paranormal. And I believe it was like a, I'm probably not going to tell the story correctly, but I believe it was like a great grandfather, or maybe even a grandfather who was a dentist back in the day. Yeah. But that for whatever reason, he became known as like, he would approve or, or give the uh, the boot to the local psychic who came to town, <laughs> and I have no idea. I, I have no idea why the dentist was, but um, but because of that, Dan Aykroyd, you know, when he started digging into sort of the family tree, saw that there was this unique interest and a, a serious interest in the paranormal. Yeah, and he's involved in it as well. So yeah, it's it was fascinating to me. And as I said, once there was the idea that, wow, so I could like actually use like this cool equipment to find ghosts. I was hooked. I went to college down in uh, the state of Georgia. And while I was down there, I was still involved with, this makes me feel old, but it was like pre-internet. So there really wasn't this sort of connectivity between these paranormal groups that there is now. But I was involved with a few loosely in Georgia. And then in 1999, I moved to the state of Ohio, and they had the internet in Ohio, which was surprising. <laughs> I mean, I was, it's always interesting because when I was moving to Ohio, I was asking people, what's in Ohio? What's there in Ohio? And the response I got most often, so much so that it became sort of the intro to my book, Weird Ohio, was when I asked people, what's in Ohio? They would go, I don't know, but I think a lot of people drive through there, um, which, which is a real glowing endorsement. But um, as I'm sure I'll share with you shortly, I mean, Ohio is a very weird state. And I love it to death. But um, when I moved here, I wanted to officially kind of start my own group. And that's when I started the Ghosts of Ohio on May 9th of 1999. And we've been kind of going strong ever since. Uh, so 20 years into it. In the early 2000s, I started investigating, which was one of the most infamous urban legends in Ohio. It still is to this day. It's the legend of Helltown. Sorry, Helltown. <laughs> but I spent probably about six months up in this area that's known you know, collectively as Helltown and debunked about 12 to 15 urban legends about the area. And for whatever reasons, that went viral and it just spread all over the place. And then there was a, a knock on my Outlook inbox um, from two Marks, Mark uh, Moran and Mark Skirman from Weird New Jersey. Oh, right. Yeah. And they said, we put out a book called Weird New Jersey and uh, it sold. And we're thinking about doing one called Weird US that's got a bunch of, you know, weird stuff, everything from ghosts and monsters, urban legends, weird roadside stuff. And we liked your story, um, Helltown. So would you be willing to put it in there and maybe contribute a couple of more? So I was like, sure. And they said, after the book was published, they said that I had a weird eye, which I now take as a compliment. <laughs> but um, they said, you know, you're kind of into all of this weird stuff. And we really like how you go into the history of it, as well as playing up the urban legend aspect of it. Do you want to actually work on a book that we're doing, Weird Ohio? And I said, yes. And that led to 
Weird Ohio led to Weird Indiana. There was weird encounters, weird hauntings across the board. And I guess 15 books later, here we are. <laughs> so, wow. Hmm. And that's a lot of books. I I knew that you had written those that you just mentioned, but there's even more, I guess. There's a lot that are geared a little differently because like the Weird series, they are built around the idea. It's less about the validity or the truth behind it. It's right. more of kind of bringing together each state's most well-known, most beloved ghost stories and weird things. So you're going to get urban legends and those sort of things in there. But some of my other books, which are not in the weird series, probably the big one is Ohio's Historic Haunt. Yes. I think that was kind of my Sergeant Pepper um, <laughs> when it came out because that was taking a serious look at ghost research and approaching it from the, the premise is that, and I firmly believe this, that some buildings in every state, but for this book, it was just in Ohio, but some buildings, historic buildings, will gain a reputation as being haunted. And that even if you can't validate that haunting, that ghost story can still work to keep actual history alive. And I was actually approached by Kent State University to put, they were like, we're thinking about putting out this sort of scholarly type book on ghost hunting. Would you be interested? And I, you know, I, on the inside, I was screaming and yelling, but you know, of course I was like, well, yes, I believe I would be interested. <laughs> and so that became Ohio's historic haunts that I just love the way I was able to put the book together because the first third of every chapter is the straight history of each location. I think there's 21 in the book, straight history, when it was built, who built it, all sorts of things like that. The second third of each chapter is the ghost stories. But what I wanted to do for that is I wanted to make it so anybody who read the book, if they read that ghost story section and they read that somebody had encountered something, that if they said to me, is that true? I could say, I looked that person dead in the eye when they told me that story and I didn't call BS. Right. So it's as real as that person believes. And that's what I think the strength of a ghost experience is. Because you can talk to people who have experienced a ghost and they know it was a ghost. But like I tell people, you try to explain your experience to 10 people, half of them think you're nuts. The other two or three will believe you, but you're related. So they feel they have to believe you. And the other few will be like, I don't know. I don't know what that is. So I think there's power in that personal experience. So what I did for the chapter, it ended up being I think 220 hours of one-on-one -on -one interviews with people, with the owners of the building and all that believe that they had encounters. And then for the last third of each chapter, I got locked inside the building, sometimes alone with all this fancy, you know, ghost hunting equipment to see if I could encounter something. It's so great because I think we have a lot in common, the way we operate. It's very similar in a way. I think we're probably, you know, and I don't know what journey you've gone on since you started, since you, you know, saw Ghostbusters and where you're at now after all these years and in investigations. When We've only been at this a few years ourselves, but I think when we started out, I was a little more skeptical than I am now, having been through what we've been through. You, to me, especially, I think you get this from Ohio's Historic Haunts, your book, you are a little bit of the the fox in the hen house there, because to me, you're into these stories, and I think this is good, I'm in favor of this, but your initial viewpoint is very skeptical. I think that's fair, and to me, I enjoy being called a skeptic because I am 
as you said, skeptical. Unfortunately, I think this field has now become an area where people who say that they're skeptics are either true believers in disguise or they don't believe at all. Right. I also get that because, unfortunately, I think serious paranormal research is struggling right now because of the landscape that's out there. Because for me, I think what happened is, I mean, here I go again, back in the day, you know, you could get a degree in parapsychology. Yes. But I think what has happened is that serious scientists or researchers are shying away from this field because they don't like, and I don't like, being in a field where out and out lying and faking things has almost become the norm. Yeah. But that being said, I, I am very skeptical when I go into things, but I have over the years experienced numerous instances where I don't know what that is. And I'm going to admit something that gets me in a lot of trouble with some ghost groups and sometimes the paranormal conventions when I say this. I believe in ghosts. I have experienced enough things to know that there is something there. I just don't know what it is. And I firmly believe personally, nobody knows what that is. Because for me, if we knew exactly what a ghost was and what it could do and how it operated, nobody could deny they existed. And so for me, until we get that, we just have theories and ideas. And some of them are very good and I think very valid, but I think this field would do a lot better if we just admitted it's okay to say, I don't know. <laughs> you know, that's part of what the chase is, is trying to find answers. And if we already had them, well, then we're all kind of silly to keep doing it. You know, I think that brings up a pretty good point about not knowing, because, yeah, I, I feel like the experiences that even we've had, which isn't a lot, I certainly have no idea what we encountered. The other thing that I like about your perspective, which is also evident in your book, is that you have a pretty cut and dried viewpoint on it all. I mean, even writing your introduction, the very first thing is ghosts exist. There, I said it, you know, you're so, I mean, which is what you just said a minute ago too, but you also seem to have a real finite definition of what you think of them, even if you don't know what they are or what their purpose is. Like you said, that they exist to keep, help us keep history alive. Is that, have you really come around to that conclusion? Yes, I have. And it's, I've experienced a lot of things that in the end, I will defer back to saying, that's clearly paranormal because, again, going back to I don't know what a ghost is, but an interesting thing that within my group, the Ghosts of Ohio, when I was putting it together, they were all handpicked and they, they continue to be handpicked over the year. And we're a very close knit group of about 10 to 12 members. And they come from all different backgrounds and they come from all different perspectives as to what a ghost is. And we have everything from people who don't believe to the ones who believe that they are psychic. And the reason I've done that is, especially when we are going into, say, a private residence, where these people are looking to me and my group as being the quote-unquote experts, I know that if I were to go in there and say, you have a ghost or your house is haunted, I have just shattered their world for pretty much the rest of their lives. So what I'm looking for is, if we go into these, investigations and we walk away with quote unquote evidence. So we go back to review the video and we get something we can't explain. At our monthly meetings, we will put forth that video. Basically, I kind of throw it up onto the screen and say, okay, let's all fight. Because what I'm looking for at the end of the day is for the total skeptic 
to say, I don't know what that is. And for the true believer to say, I don't know what that is. And for the electrician to go, it couldn't have been caused by something, electricity in the walls, using as an example. And if we all walk away by saying, we can't explain that, we don't know what that is, that's what I'm looking for. And that will be presented to the client, if you will, not as a ghost, but as here's what we got. We can't currently explain this. Do with it what you will. If they want to call it a ghost themselves, I'm fine with that. If they want to say, no, that's just ridiculous. I'm fine with that as well. Well, I had my teeth cleaned the other day. Oh, how'd it go? It actually went pretty good. Excellent. Yeah, a year or two ago, I went in and I had to have what they called a deep cleaning. And I got to tell you, Ooh, that, that mess yeah. is no joke. Some people actually break those into two sessions because they're so intense. But not you, because you're so tough. I'm tough as nails, man. But mm. I can't say I wasn't thrilled that I didn't need another deep cleaning. And you know why I didn't? I give up. Quip. Oh, of course. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, right. Quip is the remarkably simple electric toothbrush created by dentists and product designers to focus on what actually matters for your oral health, healthier habits. Quip's sensitive vibrations with a built-in timer guide gentle brushing for the dentist-recommended two minutes with 30-second pulses ensuring an even clean. Quip automatically delivers brush heads to you every three months for just $5 for clean new bristles right on schedule. That's part of the solution to healthier teeth and gums because 75% of us use old, worn-out bristles that are ineffective. And Quip's sleek, intuitive design is simple to use and comes with a travel cap that doubles as a mirror mount. Simply put, Quip makes brushing something you actually want to do twice a day. Your oral care matters, so ditch the gimmicks and grab a Quip. It's one of the first electric toothbrushes accepted by the American Dental Association, which is made up of over 25,000 dental professionals. Quip starts at just $25, and you'll get your first refill free at getquip.com slash legends. This is a simple way to support our show and start brushing better, but you have to go to getquip.com slash legends to get your first refill free. Go right now to getquipquip.com slash legends. This is Brandon Delo, and when I'm not composing the music to films and series like Small Town Monsters, I'm listening to Astonishing Legends. Now let's get back to the show. One of the things that we found in just, you know, looking at your at your website and everything is that your group has had over 200 investigations, up to 50 private homes. If that information is even current, it might be more by now. What dictates what gets you guys called in? Do you do you have a vetting process? And then um, once you get there, it sounds to me like when you say, we, well, we're identifying something that we don't know what it is. Uh, do you ever offer some kind of solution for people once you've identified that thing, something for them to do after you've left? In terms of the vetting process, and that sort of changed over the years, even the 20 years that I've been in Ohio, is what we are looking for right now is, again, that looking that person in the eye across the table and seeing that they really believe that this activity is happening. I always tell people when they're like, so you're like a ghost hunter? And I'm like, "Uh, I guess you could say I'm a ghost hunter, but I'm also a psychiatrist, psychologist, an electrician, you know, because just because they believe that there is ghostly activity taking place, we have to come at it from all different angles. Most of the people who reach out to us through social media or through the website, they're looking for answers. And if that answer is, 
uh, I'm going to make something up. A few years ago, we had people were experiencing these weird feelings of being watched, and it was down in the basement and all sorts of odd sort of things, like they were getting dizzy, and I found out that they had gas. The client didn't. It was, it was, it was <laughs> gassy. Um, and it, I'm feeling gassy. It's a different kind yeah. of paranormal. Yeah. <laughs> um, Carbon monoxide? Or no, radon. Radon, maybe? Yes. It was a little bit of both that was actually in there, uh-huh. and so we were like, look, this could actually be what's causing it, and it turned out that it was. They made some adjustments, and everything was fine. So the vetting process is just to make sure that the experiences, if you will, are legit. We will then go in there and see if we can find any evidence. Most of the time, a lot of the activity tends to be a bit exaggerated, at which point we can kind of go down the path of finding out if you know there could still be something there, but this sort of um, activity that seems to be going off the charts, we can usually tie back to they've watched a few too many of the ghost shows. You know, they have something going on in their house, and then they, they're like, well, wow, here's a, a show about ghosts. Let's see if, you know, we're experiencing the same thing, and it's a very dangerous path to go down, because now they have, like, I don't know, it's like when ghosts attack and make you write bad checks. You know, it's, it's, it's there's certain <laughs> channels that just are, like, crazy with this stuff. Yeah. When we get to the point where we've gone in and we have encountered something that we can't explain, and we present it. A lot of the time when we are contacted, it is very common to hear, I don't know what it is, but get it out. Right. We will explain to them, we do not do the getting out part because, again, we're still trying to figure out the whole what is it part. Right. But once we present them and we're like, well, something is going on right here, but guess what? It's not going to get you. You are safe here. You know, There have been a few instances where over the years I've gone into a place where it's just felt negative. But by and large, once you tell a client, there could be something here, but it's not going to hurt you. That whole get rid of it goes away. And most of them are actually, they think it's kind of cool. But if they get to the point where they still want it gone, there are several steps that we take. We do have, and this is where I have to bring up one of my infamous catchphrases. I call them two bottle conversations. Because you kind of need two bottles of really good wine to get into <laughs> right. this. But if someone does believe that there is something in the, is in their house, a ghost, a spirit, and they want it to leave, we have found that in order for that leaving to be most effective, we have to then delve into what their religious beliefs are, if any. Because again, it always brings up that idea, well, you have to tell the ghost to go be with God, go to the light. And, and then, then I come back with, well, what if it's an atheist ghost? You know, how do you, where do you tell it to go? So we will sit down and have a conversation with the client as to what their sort of religious background or beliefs are. And we do have members of clergy. We've got all various religious leaders, if you will, that we can put them in contact with in terms of actually how they would approach getting rid of something that's in the house. We do also offer up sage because that has, for us in the past, worked very well. And I am very open with the clients and with you guys in saying, I don't know how much of that success rate is based on it actually, sage actually driving this energy out and how much is it that it's psychological because you have got this very sort of ritualistic of the lighting of almost like incense, if you will, and going around and sort of taking control back of the house, even if they're not 
I cast thee out sort of thing. They're just walking around and very ritualistically, you know, lighting this. That I, I don't know how much of that is subconscious, the effect that it has, but we've gotten very good results with the sage as well. But that's sort of our process. Well, who comes to you with a problem generally? Is it a, is it a business owner or do you find any patterns with this? Like, is it, is it usually private residences more so, or it's a, you know, we often say or, or have noticed that places with a lot of human activity in them, churches, theaters, you know, hospitals, those sorts of places where there seems to be a lot of at least human energy and emotion going on in them have more activity. So who comes to you gen- typically and do you notice any patterns or differences? It's another great question. We have been trying to, one of the things that in general, the ghost of Ohio is, is always obsessed with is trying to determine patterns. We have not determined if there is a pattern with regard to the type of residential or commercial, if you will, or a private residence versus a, a public building. We have gone across the board. Most of the residentials that will sort of ebb and flow over the years. Um, that is sort of almost dropped off now in recent years, where more of what we get are sort of the privately owned buildings, uh, places of businesses. From what I have been able to put together, when I first started the Ghost of Ohio back in 99, I looked around, and one of the reasons I was like, I'm going to start my own group is there were three other groups, if you wanted to call them that, in Ohio. We actually track all groups in Ohio, and we currently, let me look, there's 185. Wow. And those are with just a website presence. We did not go down the path because we would we would never have time to sleep of people who, which seems to be another trend, which is just a Facebook sort of page is their only sort of place to go into. But I think that's given rise to Whereas back in the day, they were like, well, who do we turn to? Now you have this. There are so many groups out there that if someone were to reach out, say, even in prior to, say, um, Ghost Hunters, when you know the first big reality ghost show came out, people would say, if they said to their friends, yeah, I think we have a ghost in our house. Do you know who I could contact? Most people would be like, I, I don't know. But now it's, well, who do I contact? Well, I've got a cousin who's in a ghost group and I've got two (laughs) brothers. They're both in ghost groups. And so there seems to be that there's now this idea, and it might be valid, that you could, you know, do your own ghost hunt. Because if you think about it, that's where a lot of these YouTube videos end up coming from, where, you know, we heard noises in our house. And so we got ourselves a K2 meter. We did our own ghost hunt. So there seems to be a drop off in residentials for us. But that being said, we do get a lot of private businesses. And as you mentioned, they are ones that have a lot of sort of that human activity. So uh, we've recently done a theater, an active hospital, which still kind of blows my mind. Um, And I think along those lines, the types of buildings that we are getting are coming from the idea that, wow, this group has been around for a long time. We can't find anything negative about them. <laughs> so, you know, they must kind of know what they're doing. So over the years, we've done active churches, which is still just blows my mind. But a lot of that is also due to the fact that we have confidentiality agreements. So we don't share any of our private investigation stuff anywhere. If you were to go to our website, it doesn't look like we're active at all because we don't share any of that information. And if it gets to the point where, 
and we have captured some really interesting stuff that we would like to actually share, say, in one of my presentations, there's a waiver that basically we will go back to the owner and say, look, here it is. We will not talk about, if you don't want us to, we will not talk about the address, the location. We'll just say it was undisclosed location. So we do get a lot of commercial type buildings because of that, but we've yet to determine there doesn't seem to be any pattern. Although the last two that we've done are public libraries and both of which we did get odd behavior, if you will, or odd activity in both of them. But that does go to what you mentioned earlier, that idea of places where you've got a lot of human activity going through there. You've really come full circle. You are actually a Ghostbuster at this point. <laughs> well, thank you, you just thank finished... you for saying that, and thank yeah, well, you for noticing that. Like, <laughs> yeah, and, um, Ghost discoverer. I'm a little upset because we've um, in each of those libraries, we've been to one four or five times and the other one twice. So you're talking about almost 10 times tops between the two, but I've yet to see the vertical book stacking that I've yes. heard so much about. Over <laughs> no the no human could have that. done this. Well, <laughs> it, it, in regards to those kind of uh, happenings, when you go to a site for an investigation, you know, you mentioned this a little while earlier. You know what? I think a lot of skeptics, they go right to this, the Sandhill Crane, the owl, the swamp gas of UFO explanations or the weather balloon or flares. It is, you've got a natural gas leak. And we've seen that so many times. It's like, well, there you go. You should you know check for a natural gas leak, which you should do. But when you get to a place and you have no natural explanation and you have to tell the owner that maybe it's something supernatural that you believe in, or at least it's it's some kind of spiritual energy or some kind of unseen force. How is that taken? As you said before, like people just want an answer, but has anybody said, oh, come on, that's crap. It's got to be a gas leak. Um, not that I can recall, because again, the sort of activity that we would show or present to a client we never present personal experiences as quote unquote evidence. We will talk about it, but we will then kind of discuss what happened and then said, but you know what, we don't have any data to show you. There is no audio and video, you know, so it's just a personal experience. Hmm. But the things that we do show or play for them, I'm trying to think, but the vast majority, if not all of them go, wow, that's weird. That's kind of cool. Again, what I had mentioned earlier, I am very cognizant of the fact that as the expert, the minute I say, yep, you have a ghost, right? their lives are changed forever. And so I'm very hesitant to say that. But most of our evidence is very well received. And I think part of that is also the packaging, how we package it up. Because as I said, we don't go, see that? That's a ghost. Because <laughs> right. going back to that personal experiences or personal beliefs, what a ghost does and looks like to one person is totally different from another person. So have you ever been to a place, though, where you've got some kind of reaction, a personal reaction? It could be a piece of evidence. And you were blown away to the point of, like, I don't know what to tell these people, but they may have a serious problem here. I guess being scared to the point in a place where you maybe you could turn them to somebody who does these kinds of removals or I guess it's called spirit remediation in the biz, but where yeah. you were just kind of stumped and you didn't know what to say or, or really who to turn them to. I don't think so. Hmm. Um, we surprisingly do get a lot of cases where 
it becomes less about the ghost and more about the person and the, I'm trying to think of how to put this delicately because we do meet people that, as I said, it's less about the ghost and it's more about their emotional state and what they are actually going through that they have worked themselves up almost into a frenzy about when it comes right down to the actual ghost activity that's being reported. It is just a footstep or two that Mm. seems random, but yet they have gotten themselves so frightened over things that you almost have to take the ghost out of the equation and work on their emotional well-being. As I said there, we do get quite frequently these cases where it is very evident that they have been watching some of these more extreme ghost shows and they think something is going to get them mm-hmm. um, and to the point where they will describe having feelings of wanting to hurt themselves, of hurting others. And that's where I, when people ask me, you know, I, I'm thinking about starting a ghost group, any advice? I'm like, yeah, don't because, <laughs> you know, go on the public hunts and you can still do that. But the minute you start trying to work with the general public and go into their homes and their businesses, it can really weigh on you because you have someone that comes to you and you're like, okay, this ghost activity is almost non-existent, but this person needs help. You know, I yeah. mean, when, when someone comes to you and says that they have all of this going on, you know, what do you do? What we normally do is we're like, you know what, get out of the house. If you are in any situation where you and it goes aside, if you are in any sort of situation where you feel like you're just going to put somebody through a wall for no apparent reason, you kind of need to disengage from that. So we will try to walk them through that. But in terms of actually feeling that they've got something that I didn't know how to break it to them or that mm-hmm. it was something that I thought would be kind of hard. I, I can't actually recall an instance where that was true for, yeah. for me anyway. Well, do you think it's possible though, that there are inexperienced groups out there who just, you know, kind of get some matching t-shirts and they go in and they don't really know what they're doing, that they can actually cause harm to either the person or in, you know, ramp up the activity if they don't know what they're doing. Most definitely. And again, I think this goes back to why I sort of have a reputation mm-hmm. in this field in that I welcome the opportunity to work with other groups, especially if they've got different beliefs or different systems about how to go about validating hauntings, if you will. But I do think that I tell people that I would not change what I do for anything. I love spending hours going through that, you know, that now obsolete thing that was known as microfiche and, <laughs> you know, going through records and spending, if you think about it, spending hours and hours in the darkness talking to yourself, you know, I mean, it's, and I love that, but I also get that that's incredibly boring. And so right. you kind of need things to, to kind of spice things up. And that's what these shows are doing because, you know, they've got that thing called ratings, but I think a lot of even good intention people get into this field, as you said, so, okay, step one, get the matching t-shirts, you know, and then, yeah. and they go around and they end up just trying to scare each other or the shine comes off the apple because they're like, this is boring. Right. Um, or they go down the other path, which is, you know, I'm happy to say it's sort of dying out, but it was very in vogue a few years ago to challenge the ghosts. Yeah. And to me, 
<laughs> I joke with my wife because that, that was one of the reasons that when we moved to our new house, that the television actually had to be like put up on the wall so that I couldn't punch it because <laughs> I would see these people doing this and like antagonizing it. And I started rooting for the ghost, you know, because <laughs> right. it's one. I, and, and I also think it's just rude, yeah, you know, but to go in there and, and I do think that can have, Negative results, if you will, even if that negative result, because I've been convinced over the years, I've gone into some of the quote unquote most haunted places in Ohio, the Midwest, California, I mean, you name it. And I've gone into some of them and walked out and been like, really? There's like nothing in here. And I'm convinced that the poor ghosts that were there are like, oh, no, 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 with these ghost people, they're going to demand I. I turn flashlights on and off and do, you know, I'm, <laughs> right. I'm going to go down the street, you know, and wait for them to leave. I mean, it's a funny thing, but along those lines, sort of the hidden history, if you will, of the, the picture that is on the cover of my Ohio's historic haunts. When the publisher saw it, when I sent in the picture, they were like, this is really cool. It's just the outside of a warehouse building that's featured in the book, but it was taken in the middle of the night and it looks kind of spooky and stuff. And they liked it because it was spooky, but they were like, why did you take it? Is there a ghost in the window? And I'm like, no, but over the years, I'm convinced that I'm going to actually get a picture of a ghost when I'm leaving. And I, as I'm driving away, I look up and the ghost is going to be up in the window, flipping me off saying like, all right, yeah, you thought you were going to find me ghost boy. Just get out of here. So yeah. it's now my habit. My secrets are coming out <laughs> that when I leave a location at the end of the night, as I'm driving away, I just suddenly put the brakes on and just take a picture up at the building to see if I can get a picture. There's no ghost in that picture, but that leads me back to, yes, I do think that some people, even well-meaning ones can kind of cause this different results and even sometimes negative activity, if you will, because I mean, you're kind of being a bit of an idiot when you're going in there and demanding a total stranger ghost, if you will, you know, Hey, I threw my pennies down. Now you have to dance for me. I mean, that's just kind of rude. <laughs> Well, had you heard of the story, I believe that one of the current owners of the Waverly Sanatorium tells, uh, Tina Mattingly tells about a ghost hunter type, I believe, who has who was on a show who did that challenging thing, and they actually got a huge physical reaction, like ceiling tiles coming off, the building shaking, things like that. Have you heard of anything or been a part of anything that dramatic? I had not heard that story. I, oh, okay. I've been down to Waverly several times, but I had not heard that particular story. And I'm trying to think if um, there's certainly not been anything dramatic that I think would be the result of our investigations. Because when mm -hmm. we go into them, we are incredibly passive. Yeah. My sort of EVP EVPing, that doesn't sound right either. But, um, I gotta my, go over here and uh, EVP real quick. I'll be right back. <laughs> we do, though, on our investigations, we have a rule that is you have to claim every noise your body makes. Yes. You know, so uh, there have been a couple of, now we just say that was me. Yeah. You don't have to be that specific as to what right. the noise was. But my approach to actually trying to capture EVPs is to, and I tell people I've gotten good results with it, I introduce myself, I say who I am, and I say why I'm there. And then what I love to do is I say, and I am really into the history of this building. And then for the book, Ohio's Historic Haunts, I even said, 
I am writing a book about the history of this house or this building. And if you are here, you are part of the history. And I would love to hear your story. So it's a very passive sort of approach that I take. So I I don't think anything has ever happened that I would say like a, a spirit or a ghost lashing out. But we have had some rather just bizarre things happen that, you know, leave us scratching our heads, but nothing that I think was a result of, you know, us telling it off. (laughs) Right. Well, you know, I tried that polite approach too, and I got yelled at (laughs) or something. I don't know what, (laughs) but I mean, you, we talked about it before we started recording. You heard what the recording we got in the Sally house. What what are your thoughts on that, on that EVP? Here's what's amazing is again, and we had chatted about it, that it's, that would be something that if, if I ever put that piece forward or even did it in like a presentation, I would expect, you know, some people to be like, well, you know, you fake that, you know, but knowing you guys, as I do, you know, I know that you didn't fake it. That's what makes it fascinating is that that's not a, it's just weird to me. Like how, how is that actually ending up on there? That's the part with just EVPs in general that I have been, because I've been doing this for so long, I've watched how people try to capture EVPs change. And the fact that we're still getting them is just fascinating and weird to me because the original EVPs came from the idea of ghosts could manipulate the electromagnetic field and that the Sorry, you guys are going to feel old, too, because you're going to be talking about <laughs> Well, we are. But you had magnetic tape heads yeah. on the recording devices. I even had the old reel-to-reel one when I first – but the idea – it didn't really make total sense to me, but I was like, okay, there's some pseudo-maybe science going on here that, okay, magnetic tape heads, electromagnetic field, they're manipulating that. So, again, didn't totally get it, but I'm like, there's something resembling reason behind that. But now – there are no tape heads, yeah. you know? And so where are these things coming from? I mean, we, even on our investigations, we always try to triangulate everything and have at least three devices that are capable of recording audio in the same room or same area. So we can go back and listen. Yeah. That's what we should have done. But what's fascinating is that we have had instances where we will have digital voice recorders, cassette recorders, and then professional studio microphones that are hardwired into a mixing board. Mm -hmm. And we will get a recording of what sounds like footsteps or something like, and it's only on one device, even though there were two others in that room. And so much like your Sally house thing, you're like, how, how is something that in the case of the Sally house, something that appears to be that loud, whatever, you know, if you want to say, well, it was a voice or it was just a noise. How is something that loud getting imprinted on there? That's what's just fascinating to me. The big and big wireless provider stands for a lot of things, big contracts, big bills, and big fees. But what big wireless doesn't want you to know is that there's a way to cut your wireless bill down to just 15 bucks a month. 
introducing Mint Mobile, the game-changing company that's taken everything wrong with big wireless and made it right. Mint Mobile lets you get cell service online, and since they have no retail locations and overhead, they can pass a significant savings directly to you. This kind of approach to wireless is the wave of the future. Why spend your money supporting big wireless retail stores all over the country? And you don't have to get a new phone. That's right. You just bring your existing phone to the plan, and you can keep your same phone number and all of your existing contacts. All you have to do is swap out your SIM card with your new Mint Mobile one, and you're good to go. You can choose between 3, 8, or 12 gigabytes of 4G LTE data. I was actually paying a lot for unlimited data when all I really needed was unlimited nationwide text and talk, which I still get with Mint Mobile. When we first got our introductory kits, I just watched you set it up right here in Blanket Fortiana, and it looked really easy. It took me 15 minutes. I used a paperclip to pop the old SIM card out of my iPhone and replaced it with the one that Mint Mobile sent me, which I had activated just a few minutes before. Once I popped it in, I was good to go. They say the time to get activated can vary, but my phone was up and running within about 30 seconds of me turning it back on after I had swapped the SIM card. And if you need any help figuring out how to do any of this stuff, they have these great short videos where their mascot, this cool little fox, shows you exactly what you need to do in just two or three minutes. Ditch your old wireless bill and start saving now with Mint Mobile. To get your new wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month and get the plan shipped to your door for free, go to Mint Mobile dot com slash al that's mintmobile.com slash al cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash al i'm i kawahigashi and this is astonishing legends let's get back to the show have you heard of the uh Raudiv circuit it's essentially a, a unit, like an audio recorder with no microphone. And so any EVPs that are going to come through it have to come through an antenna, and there's no resonator, so it, it has to uh, be of enough amplitude or, I guess, enough energy to make an impression. But I was wondering if you'd, if you'd heard of that, because that's kind of what we were wondering. It's like, how does that get through the microphone onto the chip? Like, what was the process there? And I guess this tries to eliminate that. I'm not familiar with that particular device. I'm not either. Did you just find that just now? Well, no, you know, who actually, uh, somebody <laughs> we both mutually know, we talked about earlier here before we started recording, is Jill and Roger Pingleton. Oh, yeah, yeah. And oh, that is wow, something that that's right. Roger, Roger was, was trying to build. It, yeah, yeah, he actually, he's pretty good. He's got uh, StreamSide software where they're developing EVP-type applications for mobile devices for Apple, but also he's a good tinkerer and he was actually building one of these units. That's and what's right. interesting is that, that it takes away, I guess, Constantine Raudiv, the gentleman who was yeah. a, 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 trying to experiment it, was trying to figure out a way, okay, so people are saying you're picking up interference. The microphones, it's too near something or, or this and that. So how do we eliminate that from the equation? And I guess he was trying, that's the purpose of this device. Huh. See, I already think the microphone is not part of the equation in our particular case. Because I know there was no noise in that room when it happened. When you said that, I was like, well, I, I know that the Constantine Raudive, I have one of his books that's um, Breakthrough, mm-hmm. which is when he got into the whole idea of EVPs. And that's why I didn't remember him actually using a device per se, but maybe that's what the, hmm. the device is based off of. That, you know, brings me to another question. And one of the things that, you know, you start out in uh, Ohio's historic haunts, 
was talking about gear and the gear, and that's something that we currently have a fascination with because we were, at best, we're not even really qualified to be amateur investigators because we've investigated uh, essentially two or three things. Or, or even amateurs. Very poorly, yeah. yes. But the gear is real fascinating to us. We're both kind of tech heads. You know, we come from a post-production background, so we understand how all this kind of stuff works. And we're now, we're looking at Connect SLS cameras and and these other devices that you might take into an environment to see if you could record anything. What I And I like this quote from your book where you said, uh, there is no device that detects ghosts. And I, so I guess I wanted to find out, but then you went on to talk a little bit about EVPs and that sort of thing. I guess I wanted to see what your take was on gear and like the current state of gear, because all these things are coming out. And like you said, you even said in your book, I think, you know, you slap a sticker on it and you start charging a fortune for this thing that was pre-existing. So, you know, like the the K2 or whatever, what's your position on all that? <laughs> yeah, that particular device with this sticker is a, um, a cell sensor. That oh, right. You pay an extra 10 or if it's got the ghost meter sticker on it. Right, um, right. <laughs> my approach to in general is that at its essence, if you will, that a ghost, whatever you think it's capable of, that it boils down to it is a form of energy. I mean, it has to be some sort of form of energy in order to be able to exert enough, say, force or pressure on the footstep. You know, if you're hearing footsteps or things like that, if it's not a residual, we're talking here about that there is an active intelligent sort of spirit, it's got to have some sort of energy. And so my approach to the sort of the handheld devices is I want to use as many as possible that will detect energy changes. Now, that could be temperature. That could be in the electromagnetic field. We ended up getting a lab pro system by Vernier, which I love it because we kind of call it our ghostly tackle box. It is a data logging system that is designed for basically like high school science experiments. And there are probably about 40 or 50 different sensors that you can get based on the experiment that you're trying to run. If, so if you're doing a temperature thing, you can get a spot temperature, you can get an ambient temperature device, and you just kind of plug them in. So what we will do is when we go out to a location based on what they're experiencing, we will use these different, you know, we'll be like, okay, well, we need the temperature ones and we'll, they report feeling, you know, a cold breeze go down a hallway. So we will get three or four ambient temperature devices and stick them all the way down the hallway thinking that they would trigger one right after another. And over the years, not very often, but we have had that happen. And since it's a data logger, we can plug it into a, a computer and basically use that as a monitor so we can see those changes taking place almost in real time. I mean, we have it set up that it'll take a reading every half second. So right. we can literally see that bar, that chart going up and down. But we will mix up the different sort of devices. As I said, we have had weird results recently with one of these sensors that measures static electricity because under normal circumstances static electricity will build up over time until it you know discharges you know if you walk by with your on a carpeted floor with your socks you know and you get that little shock but the, the static electricity should be continually going up we have had two instances where for no apparent reason they get sucked out of the air. So it's it, the, the levels will drop down. And they have been in spots where people have reported seeing or feeling ghosts. You know, we keep experimenting with that. The problem with a lot of 
the devices that are out there now, as you said, the sort of the, the connect camera, you, know, you can get wonderful results with that. But what we do is whenever there's a new device that comes out, we will purchase one and try not to break it, but we'll take it apart <laughs> yeah. to actually see if it is doing what it is said it's doing, knowing, as I said, since I don't know what a ghost is, I don't think anybody can make a device that can technically detect a ghost. It can detect changes that could be ghostly, but there is no ghost finder. That mapping camera, we found because the technology that's within that camera, it's designed in much the same way that, you know, sort of they all like Madden football games or, you know, they use it in movies now where they're trying to actually map a person walking yeah. up against, say, a green screen or something oh, like yeah, that. Oh, yeah, with the ping well, pong motion of, capture suit or whatever. Yeah, it's the same technology. And so what that does, and that's why a lot of these shows get, oh, well, the ghost is like walking, you know, up in the air or it's it suddenly appeared. When we took that particular device, anything that it detects as being different it immediately tries to make into a person. Right, because the algorithm is designed to, because originally it's developed for the game, and the game is looking for the kid in the room who's trying to do a dance-off, so the algorithm is yep. going out of its way not to make errors so that the kid doesn't get mad and tell his parents that the Kinect camera sucks. Exactly. Yeah. Now, we have a... Um a newsletter that the ghost of Ohio puts out like every other month and it's free, but it's got everything from movie reviews and book reviews, but we also do equipment reviews. And oh, cool. that, so when we did the review of that, we did say, okay, so in that regard, it doesn't really work, but that's not to say it can't detect anomalies. So what we suggested, and we use one on our investigations, you use a connect. Yes. And okay. what we tell people to do is throw away the handheld part, mount it to a tripod, lock it down, keep it stationary. And then, you know, if they say that there's they see ghosts walking down the hallway, well, you know what? Point it down the hallway and let it run. Yeah. You know, you can stand there and watch it or walk away because once you point it down the hallway and you lock it down, eventually it will settle down. It'll stop trying to make, it'll be like, okay, that's a bad mystery. That's not really a person. And it'll, it'll settle down. And after about 10 minutes of not moving at all, it's done. It'll just record. So what we're looking for is, okay, you know what? After about an hour, this has not happened yet, but after a few hours of it sitting there and nothing, all of a sudden, a stick figure appeared and it looked like it was walking down the hallway. Right. That to us would be something interesting. Have you tried waking it from that state as a control? Like one of you walking in front of it after an hour? Does it wake up? Yes. Uh, okay. Yep. It does detect it. But again, if whatever it sees, it tries to make into a person. So we even did experiments with my cat. <laughs> that we actually we locked down here at the house, turned out the lights and stuff and waited. And after a little bit of time you know, the cat did walk past it and it triggered and it came on, but it turned the cat into a person. Oh. So it looked like a person was crawling on the floor. So it's always going to try to make a person, which if you were pointing it down the hallway after a couple of hours, if all of a sudden it triggered and there was a person walking, you still have to say, was that really a ghost person or was it just an anomaly that it tried to make into a person, but either way, it'd still yeah, be an exactly. anomaly so, unless it was a, a rat or a critter that you missed. 
or something like right. that. And then it's trying to also make that into a person. Exactly. So what we need is we need one of these algorithm writers to uh, <laughs> modify the code to have it make um, less assumptions. Or connect for pets and animals. Yeah. <laughs> well, but, but I mean, that's the thing, though. It's trying to find people. You know, and I, I feel like I might have read your review because all of this sounds very familiar to me. I feel like I read about this back when Forrest first said to me, hey, we should get one of these. And I, I remember going online and trying to read what people were saying about the Connect. The idea is interesting about it, but there is another uh, device I think that might be more effective. And that also puts out uh, a multitude of beams of infrared uh, light that is tracking any kind of anomalies or movement. That was lasers, wasn't it? Or was maybe it, it was lasers? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, we have had some really interesting results with lasers, and we tend to go more for the grid pattern one, as mm -hmm. because what we will do is, and in theory, again, I I tell people you it's just a regular laser pointer. You know, they they just put the little kaleidoscope thing on it to turn it. But I mean, I I see some of these paranormal laser grids that are going for ridiculous amounts when really you just need the strongest one you can get. And if you can get a kaleidoscope thing out of it, all the better. We've even incorporated after Christmas, I tell people, go and hit the stores and you can get those ones that you put on the front of your house. Yeah. yeah. Right. You know, because you know, yeah. the red and the green, because I mean, that's basically a strong laser. Right. You know, and you can get that. And there was a location for um, Ohio's historic haunts for the, the when I actually went out there the McKinnis Litzenberg house and it is a historical building. And during the interview portion, it's a historical thing. And on that property, they sort of do a uh, period sort of recreation of things and they yes. have you know, period and people in period clothes, those sort of things. And one of the volunteers there that I interviewed for the book, it was her job to close up the building. And it was sort of just like a two story uh, farmhouse. And what, she reported is that she was upstairs and she came down a sort of a main staircase and she went into the sort of living room where the fireplace was and that she saw this sort of dark figure on the stairs. And at that point she decided it was time for her to go. And she went to the back of the house and was trying to turn on the alarm. And as she was, she was setting it and she could see that things were being triggered, that basically whatever was up at the top of the stairs was sort of coming down and coming towards her. And it was getting closer and closer. And she basically kind of set the alarm and then like she took off. So it's setting off motion detectors in different rooms. Correct. And, and getting closer yeah. and closer yeah. to her. Yeah. And getting closer and closer. And she said that, you know, she had seen this thing sort of coming down the stairs and corner, looking over the stairs at her, which I find incredibly kind of creepy about it. And so that's one of the main stories that she had reported about the building. When we went out there and I kind of set up all the equipment, I took a laser grid and basically shot it across the living room so that it was hitting all along the staircase. And then up above the staircase, it was shooting out and then hitting a wall behind it. And we're getting set up. There is no electricity in the building. So we're kind of, we had, I'm trying to remember, we had a generator off the property. We were running off of batteries. I mean, it doesn't really matter. But as, yeah. as we're setting up, the girl who was with me, she was like, what is that? And we both looked up and saw that the laser grid, it was a green laser grid. And there's a picture of this in the book that doesn't do it justice at all because it's in black and white. But 
the entire laser grid was pointed and you could see all of the hundreds of the green beams, you know, the green dots that were hitting mm-hmm. because of the kaleidoscope effect, except there was a, what looked to be in the shape of a person if they were leaning over the banister looking into the, the living room at us. At that point, there were no beams. So that's how we could tell. And as we were looking, the beams were coming out. You could look over and see where all of the, where the beams were coming through the kaleidoscope. So they were all hitting. It's just that between the laser and that part in the staircase, yeah, a whole bunch of the beams were not, I don't know, be, were being absorbed. Or I, I'm not sure what the yeah was happening there. But I did take a picture of it. And I said, I'd show it in some of my presentations because it looks a lot cooler it's it's in the book but it's not really as cool in uh, in black and white i've seen it in the book and it is pretty freaky looking cuz the question is if something's there then you would think the beams would be falling on it right and then that's pretty freaky and the alarm to have the thing moving through the house then that suggests that it's corporeal that it's something that a sonar or however the uh, infrared or I just had an alarm guy out, so I just had to talk about these sensors for some adjustments I made at my house, and he said that they actually went off body heat. Hmm. Yeah, that's different from a laser. You know, a laser is a, a light, so it's going to go till it hits something. That's really freaky. And you know what else is weird about that house is, and I've, I've mentioned this house on the show before, but there was a house in uh, North Carolina that was in my family called the House in the Horseshoe, and it looked just like that house. And it was a it was one of those houses that was a field hospital in the Civil War for a bit. And my great-grandmother used to live in it, and it was the classic thing where there's blood in the walls, and you would paint, and the blood would show up again, and you would paint, and it would just kept happening. Oh, wow. Along with other stories. But this house that you're talking about, the McKinnis-Litzenberg house and the house in the horseshoe are nearly identical on the outside. It's crazy. That's cool. <laughs> yeah. Speaking of that, just, you know, but we definitely want to talk about Waverly, which Forrest alluded to earlier, but... Before we move on to that and recognizing that you have uh, confidentiality for a lot of your clients, do you have any, are there any stories that stand out to you in all your investigations? Or also, if there's something you want to share with our listeners from your book or any of your books that you was, you know, particularly intriguing to you or frightening or anything like that? I think the one that kind of just pops out that for me was one of the coolest things that happened was when I did, it was um, my latest book, which is Central Ohio Legends and Lore, which was a very hard title to say, but you <laughs> can, um, it encompassed not just the ghost stories, but it was basically legendary things that happened in Central Ohio. And I had always wanted to uh, find out more about author James Thurber. Okay. And he wrote, and I believe it's required reading in Ohio, but it, it was in New York when I was a kid, but he wrote a short story called The Night the Ghost Got In. And he tells it, if you're not familiar with James Thurber, he's a bit, uh, well, he's a lot sarcastic. And he tells some truthful things and then he spins a yarn or two, I guess he likes to tell. So, But in this story, he tells it very straightforward, at least in the beginning, about when he was a young man in this house in Columbus, which still stands. It's the Thurber house now. And he was getting out of the bathtub in the middle of the night, and he heard footsteps first going slower, slowly walking around like the dining room, which sounded like walking around the dining room table. He woke up his younger brother. They both heard it. And then the steps just like 
took off and came up the stairs at him. And then mayhem ensues. It kind of becomes like an episode of like, uh, I was going to say the little rascals, but now I feel really old. So I'll feel old <laughs> like you guys. And, and I'll, I'll borrow the Keystone cops. From yeah. you guys, so, you know, that, but, um, I know people are like, they have no idea. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Just crazy things start happening. But the, the story ends with the grandfather who was sleeping in the attic, thinking that uh, they're being invaded and it's the civil war again, and he shoots at a patrolman. And so, so there's just crazy stuff that happens. Well, I loved the story. And so I wanted to find out what in that story was really true. Specifically, did James Thurber really think he encountered a ghost? And so I went down to the Thurber house and I asked them, and they were a little hesitant at first because they were like, when you want to find out about ghosts. And when I explained the whole, no, it's from a historical <laughs> angle. And, and then they were like, oh, okay. And then, you know, I threw out, you know, look, I, I've written a couple of books. They're not so published. They're real, you know, and then <laughs> they kind of warmed up to the idea of me. And they said, which just blew me away. They were like, the ghost story part, the, the grandfather is all made up, but the ghost story is true. in that James Thurber really believed that that, was a ghost and that was his experience and they showed me in his you know in the archives that they have letters where people were actually writing to him asking about it i think the most interesting one that he had a copy of is somebody wrote and asked to him why for the book it's on jefferson avenue but he changed it to i don't remember the it was another president that he changed it to and somebody asked him, why did you change the address? And Thurber wrote back, because the real house that's on Jefferson Avenue has a ghost in it. Mm. And there was just fabulous things about he so wanted to have that experience again, that he and his brother, who also believed that it was real, that they would from time to time sit at the top of the stairs in the middle of the night and call down to the ghost and say, are you down there? Can you come? You know, so they were trying to, basically they were having a ghost hunt to try to lure this ghost out. So I was fascinated with that. And then I tried to figure out, well, what did he hear? Is there something in there? So the fascinating thing is that the very first line uh -huh. of the short story, it's only like four pages, but the first line of the night the ghost got in begins the ghost that got into our house on the night of November 17th, 1915. And so here I am thinking, that's it. You know, I'm going to go and I'm going to go down and look at my microfiche and I'm going to find that on November 17th, something bad happened. You know, I'm going to find out who the ghost is. So I went down there and I went through all the newspapers, even back prior to the Thurber house being built there. Uh -huh. And Maps, absolutely nothing happened on November 17th. So I was, <laughs> I was crushed and thought this is going to be the worst story ever. But then I was rereading the story and the second paragraph of it begins, they, meaning the footsteps, began about a quarter past one o'clock in the morning. It's so the then 18th. I thought, okay, maybe it's the 18th. Right. So I went back and found that prior to the Thurber house standing there, the Columbus Mental Asylum stood on the property, and in the early morning hours of November 18th, it burnt to the ground, and there are reports of patients, sadly, on fire running around. Oh, my God. At which point I thought, I found something here. Yeah. And to me, I was just fascinated with that. And so 
that one in the book, but then it's like a really fascinating postscript, which is not in the book, but it happened just last year. So when I do my annual ghost tour of Ohio and do all my presentations in October, I'm including this. So if your listeners got listeners in Ohio that want to actually see this quote unquote evidence, go to my website, find where I'm going to be in October in Ohio, and you'll get to hear it. Tell our listeners your website address. If they're into just the ghost thing, it's ghostsofohio.org. If they want to find out about all my weird stuff, it's uh, strangeandspookyworld.com. There we go. Or you just type Weird Willis into a search engine <laughs> and you'll find me. <laughs> Weird Willis. <laughs> Weird Willis, yeah. But right when the book came out, I told the Thurber House, which is still in operation, they do a lot of neat things to teach. Um, you know, they have a lot of uh, sort of writing classes. It's a nonprofit thing where it's got classrooms sort of in it, but a lot of it still looks like the house inside including the staircase, the bathtub that he had just gotten out of that whole thing. And the Thurber house said, you know, would you come out and give sort of a presentation so we can sort of raise funds? And I said, well, I'll do you one better because what I think would be totally cool is I'll do the presentation, but then I think you guys should do a raffle and you can keep all the proceeds. I don't want any of it. You know, this is just my gift to you guys, but I think the raffle should be that whoever wins it, that we will take the winner and a guest and on the anniversary of the night the ghost got in, so the 17th into the 18th, they can do a ghost hunt inside with me. And that at the time, a quarter past one o'clock in the morning, we'll put them on the spot that James Thurber was standing, you know, mm-hmm. and see if they can, you know, recreate it. Because to me, that's a, just an amazing combination. You've got a literary person who was so moved by this alleged ghost encounter that he, he wrote a story about it. It just kind of blew my mind. So we did it. And the first year that we did it, we got two people who they were very nice, but I think they just wanted to kind of give the money to the Thurber house because they didn't want to try out any of the equipment. They didn't really seem to be into it. And it, it just kind of nothing, absolutely nothing happened. Right. It was kind of a bummer of the night. Last year, we got two people who were into ghost hunting, loved the idea they had their own equipment, the vibe, if you will, and this leads down to into another two-bottle conversation, <laughs> was totally different. It was like day and night. These guys were into it, and whereas the first couple, when it got to be the time where it's like, okay, it's almost time for the Thurber time, do you want to go up there and, and you know, see, and they were like, no. So they didn't even stand down the spot. The second couple were up there like 45 minutes ahead of time. Right. And so we basically had all of the monitors and everything on the other side of the house, down the stairs, all the way on the other side. And they went up there and we don't hear anything. Absolutely nothing is going on. And we are even sitting in the room next to the dining room where Thurber heard the steps going around and then running up the stairs. And the contest winners are sitting at the top of the stairs where the ghost came running up. So it gets to be almost like two in the morning. They come downstairs and and we were like, so did you get anything? Because it seemed kind of quiet here. And they said, well, did you guys start moving around like right around quarter past one? And we were like, no, we weren't moving at all, especially we wouldn't be moving at the time. We, We were trying to be as quiet as possible. And I said, what did you hear? And they said, well, we thought you guys were packing up 
because it sounded like you were opening a door and there was things dragging across the floor, like you were dragging the equipment cases. The group that I was with that was just sitting there, we heard none of this, but it was all captured on the microphone that was at the bottom of the stairs. It sounds like a door opening and closing and footsteps walking across a wooden floor. It's the weirdest thing. And we didn't hear it. And we were a room with an open archway. There wasn't a door even between us. We heard nothing. Hmm. So does that mean it's residual? Because it was happening right around the time, which leads to the other two bottle conversation. Does that mean <laughs> that ghosts adhere to daylight savings time? You know, I mean, <laughs> right. how does that yeah. how does that all work? But to me, it's just fascinating that something gets recorded and it was recorded on a studio microphone. Again, it's on a shock mount that's mounted onto a, a, a mic stand and then hardwired into a mixing board. And it just came through. Here's the other weird thing. There were four microphones running in that area. It was only on that one. Wow. And how far was that mic from where you guys were again? Eight feet, maybe. Right. So the mic picked it up. You were right there. You didn't hear it. Correct. And neither did the three or four other people that were sitting with me at right. the time. Right. But the two contest winners did hear it to the point where, and you do faintly hear it on their recorder. Yeah. It doesn't sound anything like what we got, but they took it as being a normal noise that we were just packing up. Did you line up the audio from the pro mic at the bottom of the stairs with their audio at the top? And did they sync up? They sync up. The okay. weird thing, though, is that when we synced up the remaining microphones, there is nothing that at the point where you're hearing, we'll just say the door and the footsteps, there is nothing on the other microphones that could have been just been a case of, well, the way the mics were positioned, it was actually, I don't know, me talking, mm -hmm. but the, because of the way the mics were. So there is no noise that could be mistaken for a door and footsteps. We also had a, an infrared video camera pointing at the stairs. And so you can tell that there's nobody in that area at the time. Would you be willing to share that audio with us so we could bake it into this episode? Yeah, sure. That'd be great. Hey folks, I'm popping in with a little pickup here just to introduce the three audio clips that Jim sent to us for this. And he sent a written description, which we have in the show notes, so you can check that out. There are three microphones set up here for this investigation. Microphone number one was at the top of the stairs. Microphone number two was at the bottom of the stairs. And microphone number three was in the front parlor. What's interesting is that the contest winners that Jim was referring to are up at the top of the stairs. And what you're going to hear on these recordings are sounds that they heard, but that no one else in the house heard. That includes uh, some voices or a voice, I should say, and the footsteps and a door closing. It's pretty amazing because the other folks did not hear that. He sent pictures that show where the microphones were and also where they were set up to monitor everything in their command center for the investigation. He explained that no one else was walking around in the house anywhere. It was just the contest winners upstairs, and then the rest of the folks in the house were all down in this room in the command center. Everyone in the house reported being able to hear the contest winners talking, but not the footsteps or the door or the unknown voice that you hear uh, in, in kind of a murmur on the recording. So right now I'm going to play the first clip. That clip is coming from microphone number one at the top of the stairs. Here it goes. 
Okay, so this is microphone number two at the bottom of the stairs. And this is microphone number three from the front parlor. Okay, so that's all three clips. What Jim says you'll note here is that all three microphones picked up the two contest winners having a brief discussion regarding the noises they were hearing and their belief that it was being caused by the team members or them downstairs. The conversation begins at approximately 19 seconds into the clips on all three microphones and consists entirely of the following exchange. The female contest winner just says, is that them? And the male contest winner says, yes. So that's an example of microphones in the same situation picking up some things that other microphones didn't pick up, and also an example of microphones picking up things that people who were present did not hear. We think you have pretty good methodologies for trying to isolate and prevent any kind of contamination with noise or uh, electronic interference. I've heard one thing that you tried to do is get voice prints of the crew, of everybody that you ever work with, so that you can kind of match up any EVPs you might get later to rule people out. But I've also heard you've had voice prints come through on EVPs, but those team members were not at the location. Is that true? Yeah, we're actually encountering quite, I don't want to say quite a bit, but there's been several instances we're almost calling it like an audio doppelganger, which mm. I don't think even really exists, but we have gotten... To your point, what we do for the investigations is anybody who is either in the group will be on the investigation, we create sort of a little audio file of their voice. And what we will do is, I think the book is when the ghost screams, but we have somebody, mm. each person, we will record them with the studio microphone and we will have them read three sentences from this book with them right up against the microphone. Then we'll have them whisper it right up against the microphone because, you know, obviously you're not using your vocal cords when you're whispering. Then we back them up six foot and we have them do the same thing. Whisper, say it, and then we back them up about 10 foot, same thing. And what we do is we kind of have our own individual voice patterns so that what we can do is when we go and get quote unquote a ghost voice, we can try to match it up against the people who were on the investigation at that point in time and see if it could be that it was just a weird coincidence or something or the way that the microphone or it wasn't that strong of a microphone on the digital recorder, but we use that for a comparison. But you're exactly right. We've gotten instances where we've gotten people's voices when they weren't there. Um, one of the more recent ones, which I can't explain this, is it was at a library that we were doing an investigation and what had been reported was 
in um, sort of this little central area slash hallway that led into this gentleman's office that when he was sitting at his desk, he would sometimes feel like another presence there, but he would also hear a woman. If I'm remembering correctly, I think she might've said his name one time. I'm not clear on that, but he did hear a woman's voice. So what we did throughout the night, but in this particular instance, I was sitting at the gentleman's desk pretending that I was working. And the setup was that, so I had my back to the door. The door was open. I had a digital voice recorder right next to me. Probably about six foot behind me was a a studio microphone with a whole 180 going, but it was facing towards me. Behind that was the door that led out into another hallway. That door was open. On the other side of the hallway was another door that led into a big sort of conference room. At the very far end of that, which, so from me, you're probably, I'm going to say maybe 50, 60 feet away from me, if not more, but across several rooms, one of our investigators, Wendy, was sitting and she was kind of looking at the, she had the, um, looking at the monitors and those sort of things. And then directly in front of her was a door that was closed, but that led out to the library. And that's where the rest of the investigators were sitting. So as um, the night is going on, I'm not feeling anything weird or anything like that. But at one point on recording, I hear Wendy laugh and kind of like we always have to claim every noise our own body makes whenever we hear something that's clearly somebody else, we just mark it. So for the recorder, so that in case I'm not going back and listening to the audio, somebody else is, they don't mistake what they're hearing for you know something ghostly. So I say, that's Wendy laughing in the other room. The session that we do, we break everything up into like hour long sessions where we put people in specific locations. You can move within that location, but you can't leave it. The reason is we're trying to kind of make sure we know where everybody is at a special time. So the session ends and I go back in and Wendy's got the headphones on and I'm like, I really don't think there was anything going on. And she said, no, they're out there right now. It doesn't sound like there's anything going on out there either. And I said, well, what was so funny that you laughed at it? And she said, I didn't laugh. And she said, I said, you did because I marked it on there. And she was like, I didn't laugh. So I went back and I I had my digital voice recorder and I played it back and you hear me say that's Wendy laughing in the other room right before that. There's nothing. So what I heard did not make it onto the digital voice recorder sitting right next to me. Now we went back and listened to the studio microphone that was behind me that was facing towards me. The laugh is there. Wow. But it doesn't match Win- but it doesn't match Wendy. But it doesn't mm. sound like Wendy. It's close to Wendy. You know, if you listen to it, people are are like, that kind of sounds like Wendy, but it's a little off. And what I always say is is that Wendy is not obnoxious like me. When I laugh, I, I have a very loud, obnoxious laugh. <laughs> That's what this sounded like. And listening back or looking back on it, I don't know why I didn't question. Wendy doesn't laugh like that yeah. because it is a loud, boisterous laugh that is not like Wendy's laugh. 
once we realized we might have had something, we immediately went back. I went back, sat in the same place, put the digital recorder in the same place because we take pictures of where we put all the equipment. So in case we do have to recreate, put that microphone right next to me, pointing in the same place. The studio mic was still there and we had Wendy laugh. You guys are really good at this uh, this investigation stuff. You seem like you have, you're pretty good at it. You have way more <laughs> well, methods than us, which is go back to the hotel, get the thing, lock it in a room. That's that could work. <laughs> well, it did um, work, unfortunately, but we don't have any cross you know, way to cross verify <laughs> it now because we we didn't do all the other things that you do regularly, which yeah. is awesome. Is born from your experience. And by the way, we're copying all of your techniques down, and we're going to steal them. So. <laughs> well, then we're not we're not getting into Sweet. this because no. Scott is never going back into. No, any I place don't never that, say uh, never. Well, I'm, you said that. But I'm, I'm not going to be <laughs> locked in a building. We'll I talk see. about that in a minute. All right. Yeah. Well, but you know what? You you brought up something interesting here, Jim, and that uh, it just kind of pinged in my head. We've had members of our own uh, research group here, one in particular, who had a personal doppelganger experience, very scary. And, and, you know, I've heard stories, of course, uh, from others as well, where they described a visual sighting of themselves or someone they knew very closely. And what keeps coming back is that, yeah, it was a lot like them, but not exactly. There was something off. There was, uh, you know, the haircut was wrong or the eye color was wrong. Something was off, so it's not quite the same. Now, that's reminding me of this bit of audio is that it's similar, but for some reason it's, it's not exactly the same or cannot be exactly the same. Yeah, and that is the reason why we started calling this the audio doppelganger Mm -hmm. because, as you said, when you looked at the voice pattern, it was kind of like Wendy, but it wasn't Wendy. So you guys are looking at waveforms and everything. Correct. Yes. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Okay. And and even when we went back and when we tried to recreate it, when she laughing her normal laugh, I couldn't hear her. Neither microphone picked it up. When we told her to do an obnoxiously loud laugh, like what I had heard, mm-hmm. the studio microphone did pick her up where I was. I still couldn't hear it. So I don't know what I heard. Mm. But when we took her recreated obnoxious laugh and put that up against the, we'll call it the doppelganger. Yeah. Those didn't match. Hmm. And the doppelganger and Wendy's normal voice slash had aspects of it that were similar, but then there was parts where it was like, not, it almost was when you were looking at it, it seemed to have a bunch of like sort of the male qualities to the voice as well. So it was not, it wasn't Wendy. Would you be willing also to share this audio with us so we can play it for our listeners? Just anything you have. Really. Anything. Just yeah, send over just your send over yeah. 25 you gigabytes. Of, <laughs> yeah. Okay, here I am again popping in with another pickup to explain the Wendy clips. This is pretty crazy. <laughs> Jim sent these two clips in. You're going to hear some amazing stuff on them. There's two files. The first file is called WL Full. Um, I'm presuming that WL is our Wendy's initials. That is recorded by the studio mic, which was behind Jim. In this clip, you'll hear what he calls the windy laugh that he heard in real time. That laugh is curiously missing from his digital voice recorder. So listen to this first clip and listen to the laugh that you hear. (laughs) 
Okay, this next clip is called WL Missing, meaning the laugh is not in it. These two recordings were made at the same time. This was recorded by his digital voice recorder, a Tascam DR-05, which he says to note, will pick up stray interference from cell phones, etc., which come across as static. But he has yet to come across any other instance where this did not pick up something which he heard live. And this uh, recorder was sitting on the desk in front of him, facing him. So right in front of him, facing him. He said he was seated in a small office area at a desk with his back to the door, which was approximately three feet behind him. In the next room, which was an open sitting area type room, was a studio microphone, which was facing towards him. Behind the microphone was another door, which led out into a hallway. And across that hallway was another door, which led into the library's conference room. At the far end of that conference room was Wendy, who was sitting at the monitor, mixer, computer table, watching and listening to things. All other investigators were at the opposite end of the building in the library itself, as opposed to that office area. In this clip, you will hear Jim calmly say, that was Wendy laughing in the other room. In real time, when he heard it, he distinctly heard Wendy, although he doesn't know why it didn't dawn on him that one, it was way too loud for it to be Wendy since she was so far away, and two, she doesn't have a loud, obnoxious laugh like what he heard on that first recording. But when he heard it, he thought it was Wendy, and he marked it because it was so loud that he thought the recording devices around him were going to pick it up. He adds that, by the way, the various clicks, pops, and odd noises appear to all be related to him moving in the world's noisiest chair. There's also a clock on the wall, which, oddly enough, ended up helping us time out things because we could follow the beat of the clock. All right, so check out this clip, and you'll note that you do not hear Wendy's laugh in it. Okay, now we're going to play the clip with the laugh one more time. Right, so there you have a case again of audio being picked up on one device of multiple ones that were in the situation and not the other one. And also he heard it live, as he said. But the one recorder got it and the other one didn't. This material was provided to us after our recording session. So uh, this is all the discussion we're going to have on it right now. But we'll talk about it further in next week's episode. Have you ever wondered what it would be like to be David Bowie's neighbor or to get in a water gun fight with Tupac? Sometimes. Well, you're in luck because there's a brand new show launching from Audioboom, our own beloved platform provider, and Muddy Knees Media called A Life Lived. A Life Lived reveals how the lives of the biggest stars were truly lived, with exclusive interviews from the people who knew them in life. Journalist Stephanie Okupniak tells the stories of the dead. A Life Lived is a tribute to the icons who changed countless lives and continue to do so even in death. Each Monday, Stephanie will tell the tale of another deceased celebrity through interviews with relatives and friends of the deceased, sharing their personal stories. On A Life Lived, you will hear about the lives lived by Amy Winehouse, Muhammad Ali, Carrie Fisher, and many more. 
Tune in to find out Stan Lee's relationship advice, the Queen of Soul's favorite food, and which hardcore rocker fought Kurt Cobain. This Audio Boom original is an unmissable listen. It's such a cool concept for a new show, and we're really excited to hear about the everyday habits of our favorite famous people and how they're really just like us. Plus, it's produced by the fine folks who bring astonishing legends to you. So you know Audio Boom has excellent taste, and this new show is going to be great. A Life Lived is out now and has new episodes every Monday. You know, I did meet David Bowie once at the Griffith Park Observatory, and we actually hung out for a bit and had churros together. No way! Well, you'll just have to listen to A Life Lived to find out. Uh, first of all, you would have told me about that if it was true. Secondly, I don't think that would make the podcast. And third, that did not happen. Eh, probably not. But our friend Marty did see him once buying shoes at the Beverly Center. Yeah, that sounds much more likely. And, and you know what? I did see him walking around once in Soho when I used to work in New York. That's totally unbelievable. It's true. Anyway, be sure to search for and subscribe to A Life Lived on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Forrest, have you ever heard of the divine order of the royal arms of the Great Eleven? Boy, that's a mouthful. And yeah, I have, but I'll bet a lot of people haven't. You know, they were more widely known in the late 1920s as the Blackburn cult because of their leader, May Otis Blackburn. And she and her creepy gang are just one of many of the more obscure but fascinating stories we're learning about from our latest series, The Real History of Secret Societies, over at The Great Courses Plus. That's right. And we'll learn about the more well-known Freemasons and the Illuminati later on. But the point Professor Spence is making by starting the series talking about the Blackburn cult is that secret societies come in many forms and go by many names. And if you know what to look for, you'll find them everywhere. Which is a little unsettling, especially when you wonder what some of them are up to in secret. Like two of Blackburn's loyal followers, William and Martha Rhodes, had crudely preserved their 16-year-old daughter Willa's corpse under their bedroom floor for nearly five years. Because they believed Blackburn when she told them that Willa was a future celestial queen awaiting resurrection. And here's a freaky connection. Blackburn had set up a colony for her followers called Harmony Hamlet in Simi Valley, California, which is actually just a few miles from Blanket Fortiana, and also just a few miles away from the Spawn Movie Ranch, where Charles Manson had his own hideaway for his family 40 years later. But is a cult the same thing as a secret society? Well, not always, but it can be. And secret societies generally aren't secret because most don't hide their existence. Instead, what's really secret is what goes on inside. Yeah, I'm not sure I want to know, but I kind of do want to know, you know? I do know, and lectures on the real history of secret societies is a great way to start learning all about it. Secret Societies is just one of the hundreds of in-depth lecture series that you can watch or listen to from The Great Courses Plus. And unlike fiction, you get to explore and truly master any topic that interests you while learning from the world's best professors and experts in their fields. So don't miss out on this special offer. Sign up for The Great Courses Plus today, because for a limited time only, our listeners get a full month of unlimited access for free. But to get this special offer, you need to sign up through our special URL. So start your free month now by going to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash legends. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash legends. Hi, this is Simon. And here in Yorkshire, England, we like nothing more than listening to astonishing legends and eating Yorkshire puddings. That's when the black monk hasn't broken all of our eggs. Oh, Fred... Not again. Anyway, back to the show. Do you use any techniques that are more 
non-technical, non-gear or electronic. For some examples, this would be the Estes method that was made popular here in the series Hellier. Connor Randall, I think, uh, was the one at, who, with some co-researchers, had kind of developed this method using a, an SB7 spirit box, but also being blindfolded, or something like maybe the Gansfeld effect, uh, or a psychomantium, any of those kinds of things that are less technical that you've tried. We are always looking for different ways to go about doing it. Again, back to what I had said you know, way back when we first started talking was that I know that ghosts exist. Mm -hmm. I just don't think we've hit on the, the exact way to communicate with them. You know, sometimes I think the ghosts are on the other side going like, no, you idiot, do it this way. You know, I don't <laughs> right. think we've got it down to, for lack of a better term, science yet. But one of the more interesting things that we did is that we did get it appeared that we got a result from was we're still going round and round on this. This is sort of like a late breaking thing that we're like, are we putting like an implied connection to this? But um, again, it was at a, uh, a library and we had confirmed that the first librarian was tragically, she was, she was murdered in the library. The reports vary with his age, but basically her young son was unfortunately with her at the time when she was killed, there are reports of, you know, ghostly activity taking place in this library. And we were trying to figure it out, figure out, could it be her? You know, who is it? And what we decided to do is we did research and we found that the librarian's son, who was there at the time, grew up to sort of be this uh, somewhat famous uh, late 20s, early 30s, sort of like vaudeville singer kind of thing, banjo playing, that sort of stuff. And I was able to hunt down old Victrola recordings of him that I have a Victrola. <laughs> so oh, I recorded those. Awesome. And we went in there and said, we don't know if you're here. We heard what happened to you. It is very tragic. But we want you to know if you don't know what happened to your son, he became very famous and he made a lot of people happy and we're sure that you would be very proud of him. We'd like to play some music for you. And we got some strange footsteps and things that particular time, giving you all that as kind of a basis for that is because some people in the group, the music was a bit too much because it was kind of like this <laughs> right. weird Victrola thing in a darkened library. It was kind of very like, the shining aspect. Yeah. <laughs> so, but I will say that one of the songs that he did, that he recorded was a traditional song was about how he missed his wife. He re-recorded it. And I don't think this is a coincidence. It's about how he misses his mother. So that one was a little creepy to actually be playing there. So when we went back a second time, this one girl was like, I, I don't want to do the music right now. Let's just try something different. So what we did do is sort of a variation on that technique where we had uh, a gentleman listening to a spirit box with uh, headphones on. Uh -huh. And he was just sort of like the experiment. He was just calling out what he had heard, you know, or what he thought he was hearing coming through. And what's in really weird is that after just sitting there and absolutely nothing is happening, the first thing that he said he heard and he says it out loud is, where's the music? And at which point we were like, oh, is that you want to hear the music? You want to hear the music? Even stranger is that 
that portion of when he says that does not exist on all of our studio microphones because right before he says that, three of the four microphones, while they're still record, well, the microphones don't record, but while they are still rolling, there is still an audio thing for that. It appears as though they shut off because they recorded silence. The other microphone, which is near the area where we were, I can only describe it as it sounds like somebody plugged another microphone in. It sounds mm. like, again, sorry, going to feel old here. <laughs> it sounds like somebody picked up the old style phone extension. Yeah. You know, you used to like pick the phone up and there'd be like this click and then, yeah. oh man, sorry, sorry, sorry. And yeah. then it'll be a click again. Yeah. That's on there. And there is a voice, which again, sounds like Wendy from the group, the one who laughed in the other one. Uh-huh. And this is sort of like a late breaking thing. So we don't know where we're looking to. I put a thing into um, Korg, the manufacturer of the mixing board, to see what could have happened here. Again, it sounds like somebody has plugged in another microphone into it but you, you can't it's not it's a mixing board for a studio yeah it's you can add a mic but you can't jump onto that line you can fade in and out but you can't hijack that line right so now you're looking at the idea that coming out of that experiment he said where's the music but something seemed to go haywire right at the same time these are the things again two bottle conversation so mm. you don't you don't have him saying where's the music on any recording you guys just heard it and then three out of four mics got nothing and one of them got some kind of weird interference at that exact moment yes except we, we do have him on one of the handheld digital voice recorders saying where's the music so you do have so you can hear it on one of the recorders so you had more than just the four mics and one of them picked it up, Correct, yeah. and then four of them were nullified. For and three were just there was just nothing, and one of them had some kind of strange clicking or something. Yeah, and and as I said, it's now Wendy was on the investigation, yeah. but she was not anywhere near that microphone. Right. During that time, so it's I don't know, it's a head scratcher because it's like I said, it sounds like that when you are that you picked up the phone extension and didn't realize somebody was on the line and you're like, Oh, and then you hang it up. And then it goes back to the regular, you know, audio that it was recording in the room at the time. No, I'm sorry. That microphone then dies. It comes back for about 10 or 15 seconds and then it stops recording. The other three microphones after going to silence, pop back on and continue to record to the end of the session. That would be his mic. Yes. That's a hardwired phantom power mic or pi- mic. It, there's no batteries involved in that, and it's hardwired. It's not wi- wireless. Correct. Yep. Right. Yeah, it's it's pulling the phantom power from the, the right. mixing board. That's fascinating. Okay. Well, part of the reason that we wanted to have you on the show was to talk about the uh, briefly aforementioned Waverly Sanatorium. Sanitarium? Santa. Is it torium or terium? I always get that confused. Sanitarium. Sanatorium yeah. is like a more of a gen- Tor- custodial arts thing, I think, right? It's got the O. The, the official name oh, is got sanatorium. the Sanatorium. Uh, yes. Okay. So, yeah, it is sanatorium. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Then I was wrong about custodial arts there. But um, <laughs> yeah, so this place, um, just for the sake of our listeners, I think you'd do it better than either one of us could. Could you maybe give a, a brief overview of Waverly itself, what it is and where it is? Yeah, Waverly Hills is a, um, it was built as a uh, a TB, a tuberculosis hospital. And because of that, it is incredibly foreboding in that it's, you've got 
at least four full stories. And then the fifth story is kind of like a, a half story, but it sits all the way up on the top of this hill. And it is just, you know, it's the thing from nightmares, but even mm. though it was designed to help people who had tuberculosis, but unfortunately there was no cure at the time. And they thought that the way to cure it was to try to almost force the lungs to start working again. So there were a lot of very sad techniques that were used, but again, they, they were just trying to figure out something to do because people were just dying from tuberculosis. So one of the big things is that this building was designed that it has just got, it's almost like a U shaped because they wanted to be able to get the breeze that would come up from the hillside and go from one side of the building to the other, because they thought fresh air and getting the patients out into fresh air yeah. would actually help. Right. It was to the point where when you are in the building and you are looking down the hallway, there are just patient rooms on either side. When you go into those rooms, there's no doors anywhere. They're just open frames. But you have the patient room, and then at the other end of it is another door that they would push the patients out in their beds out onto this balcony that runs the whole length. And they would just put them out there even in the dead of winter Ooh. because they were trying to get fresh air in there. Um, sadly, a lot of them died. The numbers vary widely. A lot of it was because they were trying to not make those numbers public at the time because, sadly, a lot of people were dying inside of there. They made what has now become infamous. It's um, Some people call it the death tunnel, which I don't believe was ever really used as that name. It's more commonly referred to as the uh, more appealing, I don't know, but the body shoot <laughs> because yeah. they, um, they, when you come up to the top of the hill, you just you, you drive right up and then you've got this hulking thing right there. But imagine being a patient that's there and you're not feeling too well and all of the patients are lined up looking out at the road coming up there and they're just seeing almost a line of hearses coming up. So to try to ease the patient's troubles a bit, if you will, they constructed this tunnel that came down off of the side of the building and went down the hillside to the back. They did not throw bodies down there. There was actually like a, a winch system that would lower them down, often on gurneys, down to the bottom where they could kind of load them up onto the hearses without patients seeing it. But because of that and the fact that, you know, many people died there as well as after it closed down, it was abandoned for many years. So it was sort of a mecca of ghost stories and urban legends. And a lot of people went legend tripping up there, but eventually it was purchased by the people who own it now. And it was turned into a, they do a haunted house attraction there. I believe they also do a, which sounds weird, but it's a gorgeous Christmas light display <laughs> right. um, that you can just kind of drive past. It's a, it's a little weird, but uh, yeah. I like it. Um, <laughs> I've been there numerous times, but the, the, the infamous story that I'm about to tell was from our first visit, which was in uh, 2011. Please tell our listeners what you call this story. Uh, it's the creeper story, which, <laughs> which, which I can't claim the name, but I, I will, I will never forget because when I, Scott, when I told you that was when the, the visions of, uh, 
Jeepers, it's the creeper from Scooby Doo yeah. came in. Oh, he, so, now, so ever since I met, yeah, ever since I met you, I, I, it's, it's now forever now. Jeepers, it's the creeper yeah, story, creep- you know that it's. <laughs> yeah. But this story does not involve Mr. Carswell, who was the, the guy <laughs> they pulled the mask off. Anyway, right. I digress. But, um, <laughs> so we went down there in uh, 2011. It was our first time down there. It's in uh, Louisville or Louisville, if you're local. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was our first time down there. What we did is we just kind of back in the day, we would just try to rent these places out for, you know, a private hunt, if you will, part of just so that we could have the place to ourselves so that to try to get as much of a controlled environment as possible. And so I would imagine there was probably maybe 15 or so, maybe 16 of us there tops in the whole building. We got the tour and as we were going through we as a group and even me individually have kind of bounced back and forth between two different trains of thought when it comes to knowing or not knowing about the activity that is supposed to go on there. You know, so I will sometimes be like, I don't want to know anything because, you know, I might feel something or see something. And if I know in the back of my mind, maybe subconsciously I'm forcing myself to see something that's never happened. So other times I go down there and I'm like, I want to know everything. So I know where to focus. So on this particular trip, I wanted to know, and I asked uh, the, the woman who was giving us the tour, I said, so if I wanted the best chance of experiencing something, where should I go? What should I do? And what she told me were things I had never heard about when I was doing my initial research of the building. It turns out that both of these stories that I'm going to tell were a a popular ghost television show had been there recently and had reported both of these things. So these were sort of new to me. I had no idea about any of it, but both of them involved the fourth floor. And one of the stories was that people had reported seeing, again, a doppelganger on the fourth floor. It was sometimes male. I believe it was female one time, but, but basically that people reported seeing a double of someone either in the group or someone they knew up on the fourth floor. Also on the fourth floor, they said that that was home to the creeper, which when, of course, they said, well, what is the creeper? (laughs) Um, The way it was described to me is it was almost like a shadow person. So it had an outline, if you will, of a human form, but that it would creep around on its hands and knees here comes the nightmare fuel on the ceiling. And I was like, okay, well, what do I have to do to try to see the creeper? And what was suggested, which again, I had never heard of prior, actually, I don't know if I've heard it since, but what we were told to do that if we wanted a chance to see the creeper, to take a small group up to the fourth floor and that one person should stand at one end of the hallway. And then the rest of the group goes to the other end of the hallway turns around and faces the one person and then you shut off all the lights and that eventually if you're lucky or unlucky as the case may be the creeper would come a creeping (laughs) up behind the one person Mm. so in other words the other people in the group would see the creeper coming up behind the one person okay so here comes another one of my infamous you know quotes i was like i'll be the bait you know because again (laughs) i've been doing this for so long that I'm the one that's running at the thing. You know, I'm like, this is what I'm trying to do it for. I want this to happen. (laughs) So I volunteered. I'm like, I'll be the bait. So now I'll 
stop talking like a native New Yorker and slow it down because this is one of the stories that initially when this happened, I thought it was just weird. And then years later at a presentation I was giving, somebody asked me, what's the weirdest thing that ever happened to you? And I told this story and the hairs on my arms started going up and I'm like, no, this is, this is scary. And so it's the one story that I, I have no idea what was going on. So four of us go up to the fourth floor. Four of us, including me, the group of three that were going to watch this experiment, if you were, there were two guys and a girl, and they went to one end of the hallway of the fourth floor. I walked down. There is, you still see on the floor, there's a little bit of a U-shape going. So if you get too far away, you can't see around the corner kind mm-hmm, of. Mm-hmm. So we were at the far end where you could still see us. So we went as far as possible. I had probably about 20 or 30 feet behind me and the end of the hallway. And we're facing each other. And in between us on either side, there are just open doorways. The doors are gone. So it's just open doorways going into like patient rooms and things like that. Nobody else is on the floor. It's just the four of us. And as I said earlier, we always divide up so that we, we are in separate areas so we know that it can't be anybody else walking around, that sort of thing. So they go to the far end, they turn around, they look at me, and I have a night vision camera in my hands, and I have a, sounds really tacky, but it's a very cool headlamp that I always wear, mm-hmm. but I always tilt it down because whenever I turn it on, I kind of like blind people and we're all like gremlins, you know, bright light, bright light. So I've always got to tilt it down so that it basically illuminates the ground in front of me. So I'm at the end of the hallway. I'm like, you guys can see me? I said, yeah. I took my video camera. I placed it down between my legs facing them. Right. And then I stood up and I turned off my headlamp. Okay. Okay. So I would say 15, 20 minutes tops pass. I don't feel weird. I can kind of see them. I can see their shadows, you know, and I can hear them, you know, doing timestamps, that sort of thing. But I don't feel weird. I don't feel anything coming behind me, coming anywhere to get me. I don't feel anything. After about 20 minutes or so, I hear, I'll give you the the G-rated version of all (laughs) this, but I hear from down the hallway, I hear one of them say, where did he go? And I hear another one in the group say, I think he went in that room over there. And then I hear them call out, Jim? So I went, yeah. And then I heard, oh, blank. That wasn't him. So then there's a commotion as to what's going on. So what two of the three people in the group claim they saw one gentleman claimed he didn't say any, see any of this. He did leave the group shortly after, and we don't really talk to him much anymore. <laughs> but the other two both reported seeing the same thing, that after watching my you know, shadow standing in the hallway for about 20 minutes, here it comes, I turned on my headlamp, illuminating my entire body. I bent down. I picked up the camera and I walked off to my left into one of the rooms, leaving an empty hallway behind. I never moved. I never left that hallway. Wow. Hmm. So 
all you saw from your perspective was them looking back at you. And then at some point they were in a commotion of what, because of what they saw. Right. And the, the interesting thing is because obviously I wanted to know if there was an empty hallway, how did I come back? <laughs> yeah. You know? Yeah. So what they both said, which to me makes total sense is that when they saw me leave and saw the empty hallway, they didn't think it was paranormal. They thought I got bored and just forgot that I'm, I was supposed to say, Hey, I'm moving. Right. But that I got bored and I went into that room. And so when there was, where did he go? I think he went in that room over there. They both said that their line of sight immediately went to their right to that room, the doorway. And when they called out Jim, they expected me to call back from that room. Hey, I'm in, yeah, I'm in yeah. here on board or whatever. And that when I called back and said, yeah, from the middle of the hallway, they turned back and I was there. Okay, so, so, so they don't know how I came back. Right, <laughs> right. It's it's not like you materialized before their eyes. They kind of took their eyes off of you or the spot where you were supposed to be, looked to the side where they thought the room was, looked back, and there you were again, suddenly. Exactly, yeah. yeah. So when I left the room or left the hallway, they took that to be me that I got bored mm. and I just didn't tell them I was leaving. And I, I, so it wasn't at the time, it wasn't weird for them to see an empty hallway because right. they thought I had walked away. But yeah, when I called and their line of sight, if you will, went back to the middle of the hallway, I was standing there as if I had never moved because I never moved. <laughs> yeah. Were you looking at them when they called out to you? Yes. Because as I said, I could hear them when they were, you know, talking in general, like noting the time and those sort of things, or, hey, I moved, or that sort of thing. Yeah. So my line of sight, for the most part, was directly down the hallway at them. It might have shifted slightly, but I never took my eyes off the hallway. But I do, and so that I can sleep at night, you know, I think that whatever happened, it impacted them. Mm -hmm. Because there wasn't like a time slip, if you will. There was none of that for me. I didn't feel weird. Now, they said that they never didn't feel anything weird, that the the weird feelings came after they realized that that wasn't me. Right, right. Have you ever gone in that room before or on that day or, or since in a way that they described? You mean just like like walking through the building? Uh, and, at a, um, yeah, at a different we, point in time, you know, with regard to a time slip. I know you didn't experience that, but... You're talking like an echo, maybe. Yeah, what I'm wondering if maybe they were perceiving something that had taken place at a different point in time that you had done. So I guess I was just curious if you would, if you might have ever gone into that, but you would have had to have your headlamp and a camera and everything and gone in there. Right, and this is when the two-bottle conversation becomes a one-case <laughs> conversation. Yeah, and, yeah. I did do something similar, uh -huh. but it wasn't until after uh -huh. when I went in there, kind of the way that they saw me leave that hallway. It wasn't until after when we were trying to do a recreation. Right. So there's a possibility that it was a, a glimpse of the future. But yeah. I, I mean, I don't know. I mean, it's, <laughs> right. it's a weird thing. Yeah. Well, whatever it was that was duplicating you, I think it's interesting that it duplicated the light as well. You know, the, the light of the headlamp illuminating you so they could see you. Yeah, to me, that's the weirdest thing is that if they had seen 
just, you know, if if I had just seen the three of their shadows kind of leave, yeah. I think I could have chalked that up to it was just a, my eyes were playing tricks on me right. because of the low light situation. But you're you're exactly right. The fact that my entire body was illuminated by this headlamp, if you will, and then I took that light with me. It makes no sense. Yeah, it was another interesting turn on it. But you standing by yourself at the end of the hallway alone, you had your headlamp on the entire time. No, so they he turned see, it off. He he you turned, turned it off. off. Yeah. No, I turned it off. Yeah. So, the, yeah. so what they saw was the light comes on. Light comes on. And he walks into another room. Yeah. Light came on, you yeah. bent down, picked up the camera, and then went into that room. Yep. And so in yes. their minds, it's like, what's he doing? Well, it's yeah. it's a show in a, to me, in a way. It's like, because otherwise, like you said, from their perspective, if it was just kind of a dark, shadowy figure and they're looking for the creeper, you know, and they see kind of an outline of, of Jim turn and walk into yeah. the room, that's not as dramatic. And it could be chalked up to, yeah, trick of the light or your eyes in that low light situation. But it's almost like, here, look at this. Bing, the light turns on and he turns, you know, something drawing their attention to it. Yeah. In a way. This has become, like I said, when I, it happened, I don't know if I was just trying to deny that it happened because it was just weird to me, but Mm -hmm. each time I tell the story, it gets a little creepier (laughs) because (laughs) it's kind of like what you guys talk about when it's like, well, you'll you'll have a skeptic that'll say, well, it was caused by this. Mm -hmm. And you're like, but that doesn't explain everything. Right. You could explain this by being a a trick or this being, you know, but I I can't find anything. And and the weird thing is I can't find any sort of story or documented thing that kind of mirrors what they saw. You know, Mm -hmm. I mean, you will get, like you said, the doppelganger sort of thing, but one that like has its own headlamp, Yeah. you know, or, or the fact that it left, because that's the part that really weirds me out is where did I go? Yeah. The real me. Yeah. You know, and that's why I think whatever happened was happening in front of me. Yeah. But yet it went into the room that was immediately on my left. Yeah. Well, either happening right in front of you. And so you were shielded or it was actually happening in those two or three people's heads and only there. Right. Yeah, you're talking about the two-bottle question. That Does it happen outside of your self, your consciousness, or does it happen inside your consciousness and you're seeing kind of an illusion? Some, whatever it is, is is messing with your uh, the chip that makes you formulate images. You know, what, what's going on there? Yeah, and to, to that end, what makes that ev- this one even stranger is that if I had experienced it, I'd be like, okay, somehow the whatever force was doing it to my head, but mm-hmm. there were, in my mind, it was impacting all three of them because two of them saw the same exact thing. The third one didn't see anything. Yeah. Or didn't want to talk about now, it. <laughs> or didn't want to talk about it. Right. But, but the idea that the other two saw the same exact thing taking place to me means if it was kind of messing with heads, mm-hmm. it had to do it to both their heads. Yeah. An interesting bit of synchronicity, which we've talked about on the show for a couple of years now, and and recently having watched the Hellier series where they were talking about that a, a good bit, there's a little bit of a synchronous kind of strange thing going on here, and it's only just now occurring to me. But in a way, this show is a bit time travel 
because what's happening here, <laughs> we're, we're recording this now in, uh, what's today's? Today's June 5th. We're ahead of the game because we needed, uh, we had some things going on this summer, so we needed to record some shows ahead of time. So it's June 5th right now, and we've been meaning to have you on, Jim, since we met you over a year ago. Has it been two years? Well, March of 2018. March of 2018. Yeah. That's how long it takes us to uh, make good on a on calling well, somebody to, to be up. on the show. Yeah. <laughs> but um, and so we finally get you on the show, and we're recording it now. What's surprising is we were recording yesterday too, because we've been working fiendishly to bank some shows up. As I said during our time yesterday, our friends Roger and Jill, who we have spoken about on the show before, one of them actually texted Forrest. Jill texted Forrest to tell him that. You, Jim, were going to be at Waverly for a trip that was uh, being taken there, an investigation, in late July. And what's strange about that to me, and maybe it's nothing. I'm looking for coincidences. <laughs> mm-hmm. But what's strange about that is that the text came in yesterday. We're interviewing you today. And what you didn't know, but Jill did, was that Forrest is planning to be there as well at Waverly in late July. So there's a double thing happening here. One is that you guys will all be involved in that together, hopefully, if everything uh, comes to pass and Forrest manages to make it out there. And secondly, this show will air after that, which means if anything happens, we're going to need to do a follow-up and stitch it onto the back end of this one or maybe do a second part. I'm a firm believer in things happen for a reason. And what I had mentioned earlier is that I, I very rarely get invited to speak at paranormal conventions. <laughs> So what you're saying is nobody likes you. (laughs) Ruffles a lot of feathers. Yeah, I I don't know why, but, you know, I could actually say that I'm glad you finally had me on the show because I thought you guys didn't like me because you didn't even watch my presentation. So it made me very sad. I even gave you guys a shout out during the presentation. No, I mean. We were in a hot panic about our own. We were trying to learn PowerPoint. (laughs) Oh, believe me, I saw, you know, I'm just, I'm teasing. But, um. The reason for that is that I think people just, you know, I'm a straight shooter. I mean, people who've seen my presentations are like, wow, this is great stuff, but I don't get invited to many. So the fact that, you know, the people at Kent asked me to come there and I'd never been there before, you know, I was kind of really excited, but part of me was like, wow, you know, this is kind of really rare because when I do the conventions, they're hardly ever in Ohio. So I was like, this is kind of weird, but I'm excited for it. And then, you know, this is not blowing smoke at you guys, but I mean, I was really excited when I saw that you guys were coming because I had been listening to your shows and then, oh. you know, Mr. Breedlove was going to be there. I mean, yes. it, it just seemed that all of these people that I kind of liked in general were going to be there. So it just seemed like a totally different convention. And then again, that's where Roger was. That's when I first met him and he talked to me about how he had heard me telling people about this sort of creeper story. And that's what led to him inviting me. So I, I don't know. I think there's some kind of weird synchronicity going on at the Kent theater or something like that. Uh, bring yeah. everybody together. I would agree with that. And I would agree that I'm not prepared to be locked into a place. So even though I do have legitimately something <laughs> going on, I'm, uh, during the time that you guys are supposed to be there, yeah, I'm not yeah. regretting my inability to attend. Just at this moment, I just need a little more time to get past the Sally House situation. But um, yeah. we will bring the DR60, I hope. Yeah, yeah that recorder that. 
will be there, it, I guess. It just gets Jeez. strange noises, uh, or or not. If I'm holding it, it gets nothing. Yeah. But, so maybe it won't work. So, Scott, you won't even come if, the, if I volunteer to be the bait again? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> i tell you what, I'll, I'll watch it wirelessly if I can, because um, I don't know. It's the lockdown part of it that bothers me, because my favorite thing to do is like, storm out. Is storm out of the house. Uh, or, w- <laughs> with anything, really. Movies, a restaurant, it doesn't... Whatever That's he's it, I'm leaving. Enough, he storms out. That's but, it, I'm leaving. Yeah, yeah but I don't know that. I mean, but uh, yeah, I used to be incredulous about places that are kind of tourist trappy. You look at this thing, these people have, you know, they bought it. They're making, they're making some income now off of the ghost hunts and the Christmas lights. But uh, my, (laughs) my thing is that I used to be super incredulous about those types of places. And I I was a little bit that way about the Sally house and it taught me a lesson. So if you said to me, Hey, do you want to go to the Sally house? Go back to the Sally. Well, first I would say no, but if it was a different location, Oh, and by the way, we're going to lock you inside. I would also say no, which is what I'm going to say to this. <laughs> right. But I'm very curious to hear what will happen with you guys. And I'm also excited to like, we're geeking out about some of this gear. So I looked up the Vernier Lab Pro while you were talking to us and it, it's out of production now. I guess they have they have some other stuff though that looks like maybe it does the same thing. I don't know, but. Yeah, it does. Are you going to be bringing that stuff when you go to Waverly? I'm not sure whether I'm not, I'm going to be able to do that just because it's such, I mean, Waverly is, it is huge. I mean, it's like Mansfield prison, even bigger. Yeah. So I, yeah. I don't know whether or not it would justify doing that. Yeah. Um, we also need to run power for that. So oh, I don't right. know. I mean, right. I'm certainly going to bring a whole array of toys, though. But yeah. yeah, places like these always get that moniker or they apply it to themselves. The most haunted place in America or, you know, the most haunted hospital in the eastern United States. You may have already told us this, but what's your favorite place or what do you think has the most activity because it's always hit and miss and people go there and they're as we know from the sally house you know you'll see comments like i went there and nothing happened i didn't get scratched at all it's like they, they're expecting this thing to pay off but some places seem to be more active than others is what is your favorite place to go investigate i do like waverly yeah. um and i think that's because it's enormous and there are a lot of confirmed deaths there. There's also the idea, which is, is very sad. It's a very tragic place. You know, Mm -hmm. I mean, people went there and, you know, didn't leave. So Mm -hmm. it is very tragic to the point where there is even, which is for me, the most unsettling part is up on the fifth floor, which is only kind of, it's a partial floor. And then it's kind of, I mean, it's a full floor, but it's just got a central area. And then the other sides are just kind of like exposed roof. Mm-hmm. There was a children's playground up there for no. the children that were that were in there, and that's one of the places where I defy anybody, even like the skeptics, to go and sit up there and not feel something. Now, whether or not that's ghostly, but mm-hmm. just the idea of sitting there and realizing all of that sort of sadness, you feel something. As, as along those lines, I would say Mansfield Reformatory. Yeah, and again, you've got the same sort of thing, except you're adding in that violent, criminal, hopeless, despair sort of thing Right. that fits in there. But yeah, I'm kind of with you in that there are a lot of places that you go into where you're like, there's nothing here. Yeah. Um, I found that the larger the place, the better opportunity or the more people, or again, what we were talking about earlier, the more human activity that took place there mm-hmm. when you know people were alive, you kind of are upping the ante. For that, which is why I think to bring it full circle, the libraries that I was talking about, you've got a lot of activity, human activity going through there as well. 
Mm-hmm. And I think that for me personally, I think the living need to kind of fuel the dead sort of, you know, yeah. you've got to, you know, a lot of times, you know, if the tree falls in the forest, is anybody here? Well, if the ghost walks out in the forest, does anybody see it? Or does it not have that energy right. that it can actually do to, to do those sort of things? So, yeah, but I would say Mansfield and um, Waverly are certainly at mm. the top. There's just something about Ohio, too. Yeah, that's uh, that's something I've come to yeah, I mean, more than I, a share yeah, of stuff. I can honestly say that Ohio really is a weird state, and I've tried to put my finger on it, but I think it does go back to what everybody was telling me. I think a lot of people drive through there. When you look at Ohio on a map, it just is weird looking. You've got, you know, it's landlocked (laughs) east to west, north and south. You've got bodies of water. And when you look at the history of Ohio, you did have a lot of people traveling through here, including you got gangsters. So you've got a lot of those stories going that we have got I don't even want to call them Native American or Indian mounds because we have mounds here that nobody knows who built them. Mm-hmm. They just refer to them as like the Hopewell culture. Right. So you've got these sort of mounds throughout the state. You've got these effigies like Serpent Mound, which is just fabulous. That looks like a bunch of random hills until you look at it from overhead. And it is a giant serpent that appears to be like swallowing an egg. Mm-hmm. Ohio, for me, growing up, was always one of those sort of Midwest states that just kind of fell by the wayside. You know, it was like, I was in the middle there. There's a little bit of everything there. But it has just got such rich history and weird history. And I think Ohioans in general, I have done weird books for different states. Mm -hmm. Ohioans are proud to be weird. They get what that means. You know, when I did Weird Indiana... They're a different kind of weird, but they don't like to talk about it. It's very reserved. And so a lot of their ghost stories and, you know, UFO stories, they don't really willingly share those. And I think that's kind of like a shame because it's a lot of them don't make their way out into, you know, popular culture. But Ohio, no, nah, they're weird and they're proud of it. <laughs> That's going to wrap up our interview with James A. Willis. We'll be back next week with a follow-up show detailing what happened when Forrest went with Jim and our friends Roger and Jill to participate in a lockdown at Waverly Sanatorium just last month. Please remember to support our sponsors. They help keep the show free and the lights on in Blanket Fortiana. Special thanks to John Bolin. Hi. Hi. Hi, I'm Brandon Dalo, and I give permission to Astonishing Legends. I'm Simon. Spelled D-O-N. In perpetuity. Compensation. 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 Our show is edited by Sarah Voorhees-Wendell and co-produced by Tess Feifel, who is also our head of research. Our theme, which is available as a ringtone, was composed by Judson Crane, and our sound design and additional composing is by Ryan McCullough. Special thanks to the Astonishing Research Corps. But most importantly, we want to thank you, our listeners. Visit our store at astonishinglegends.com or interact with us and other listeners on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. You can also support the show at patreon.com slash astonishinglegends, where patrons have access to additional bonus content. No part of this show may be reproduced anywhere without permission. Copyright Astonishing Legends Productions. Good night.
I cannot seem to find the first guest list, Mr. Darling. Have you seen it? Not since you set fire to it, no. Madam, you do realize, now that we've invited those people to the Midnight Library to hear you tell some dark tales, that they're actually going to come, right? There is no going back. They'll trudge in here with their noise and odors and plop themselves down and expect to be entertained. They'll expect to be safe. Well then, they'll only occasionally be wrong about the safe bit. And yes, of course, I realize now that we've invited them, they'll actually come. Do you realize that if you and I want to carry on being as we are and doing as we do, that we need those people to visit and tell other people that we're normal and the Midnight Library is too? I'll take down the framed obituaries. Excellent, Mr. Darling. I'll change this dress to a cheerier shade of black. Your Total Wine & More store is ready to serve you with our always low prices on an incredible 8,000 wines and 2,500 beers. Want it today? Try our same-day delivery or contactless curbside pickup at TotalWine.com. Whether you're grabbing your favorite beer or pouring a glass to enjoy an evening on the deck, Total Wine & More has you covered. Visit any of our 12 stores in Northern Virginia 